0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast. And guess what? It's our 100th episode.
1: Yeah! Weekend celebration.
2: Fireworks. No whistles. No snappy intro. No quote. Uh, I've decided now that instead of being the coward, I, like a Pokemon, evolved to the Craven. So I'm going to be the Craven (laughs) for the next hundred episodes. That works,
0: Uh, Derek the Craven. Well, yeah, we have got an awesome episode coming at you. We are going to be discussing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre two because why <laughs> oh, not man. go ahead and just eat our <laughs> own tails while we're on our 100th
2: episode so if this is your first time listening 100 episodes later our very first episode was the original texas chainsaw If you go back and listen to our first episodes, just be wary. We
3: used
0: to do entire plot run throughs, scene by scene. We don't do that anymore. Yeah. So just bear with us. Absolutely. And uh, to discuss this madness, we have the Lord of the Harvest himself, (laughs) Patrick Bromley from F This Movie and all the other crazy things he's involved in. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah. So do
2: a little table setting for everybody here. Patrick, in a lot of ways you and F this movie crew are the part of the reason why that our podcast even exists. It's the first film podcast I listened to Aaron turned me on to it. We have been kind of wanting to get you on eventually day one peek behind the curtain. We wanted to get you on actually for the fun house, another Toby Hooper movie. So maybe in the future we can get you on for that, but just kind of worked out this way. Like we just kind of grinded for a while and then we were able to reach out and get you on for this one. So we, we wanted to bring somebody on who meant a lot to our show and to me and Aaron personally for the 100th episode. So once again, thank you so much.
3: No, oh, thank you. Here. That is so nice of you to say, and I'm very happy to be here. Congratulations on 100 shows. Thank you, thank, thank you. Thank you. And yeah, somebody that also appreciates the
0: neon splatter insanity of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. <laughs> because this is one of my favorites, absolutely. And uh, Derek, this was your first time watching this, correct? First watch. Hell yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll save my
2: thoughts for when we actually like talk about the movie. Awesome.
0: We, well, uh, yeah, real quick, as we kind of reflect on a hundred episodes, I guess let's do our cheesy Oscar reel here and kind of get masturbatory for a minute. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we kind of joked about, let's look back on the hundred episodes we've done so far and picked a couple that we think are kind of our personal favorites. You know, funny enough, we didn't have really any overlap. So Derek, what are a couple that you want to bring up of our past shows that you would recommend people check out specifically?
2: All three of these, I think, were just ones where it was just me and you, Aaron, the three that I picked. Episode 79, Prophecy pizza bear hell yeah that was just a fun discussion all around episode 41 where we did event horizon which we still quote (laughs) the eyes quote as much as we can and then episode 28 which this now is in maybe my top 25 like period of movies original black christmas episode 28 i just yeah. that movie sat with me in a way that i didn't expect it to and it is now in my top five horror movies of all time and probably my top 25 movies of all time and of course you know i, I do like our thanksgiving tradition uh, in episodes 26 52 and 75 respectively where we talk about blood rage and i love exposing that stupidly lovable movie to more of our friends if it's wrong to love i don't want to be right type of movie yeah <laughs> um, and in no way so. shape or form
0: are we going to do that this year yeah right (laughs) yeah so uh the couple that i specifically pulled really enjoyed our discussion on night of the comet with my wife, Heather, yep. Prince of Darkness, one. which we covered with comic writer Cullen Bunn. That was a blast to get into. And yep. the wildly disturbing and just one of the best leave you in silence fucked up movies I've ever seen Excision, which I love showing people and just cackling the entire time while they're just kind of sitting there hating me.
2: That ending still sits with me to this day. Like, that is such a gut punch of an no. ending.
0: Yeah, fun stuff. So, yeah, definitely check all those out if you're looking for some stuff where, you know, we maybe had a little bit more fun and enjoyed ourselves in the conversation and kind of went into weird corridors we didn't think we were going to go into.
2: And Excision also had uh, our friend and
0: director, Zach Lamplew.
2: Yep, that's right. So check out his movie too about Bigfoot.
0: Um, And as far as our next hundred episodes, guess what? I've had a lot of people reach out and be like, hey, why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done this? We're getting to it. We don't want to do all the good stuff at one time, right? We kind of need to slow
2: our roll on Carpenter for a while. Yeah, maybe. We're almost out of Carpenter.
0: (laughs) But uh, yeah, there's a couple of big ones out there still. So, I mean, for me, things I'm looking forward to in the next 100 episodes. Candyman. Still haven't done Candyman. We still have not done Evil Dead. We still have not done The Shining, which how the fuck have we not done The Shining? And that's basically our favorite movie, both of us. So, I don't know. What about you? What have you got? Mine are a little more off the beaten path.
2: I chose Exorcist 3 because the more and more I learn about that movie, the more and more I want to watch it. Oh, yeah. This is one that I really kind of picked, but I love the premise of it so much when you described it to me, Aaron. We've only done one movie by him. God told me to from 1976. Larry Cohen. A lot of fun. We've only done the stuff. I would like to watch more Larry Cohen. Honestly, I am curious to get into the Friday the 13th series in general. I've seen a l- bits and yeah. pieces of every movie, but I have not sat start to finish through any of them, including the first one. And like even Halloween, I had watched as a teenager growing up, but like not Friday the 13th for some reason.
0: Yeah, that'll be a fun conversation to structure because do we just start with the first movie? Even though that is not at all what people know that series to be. There's weird detours like the fifth movie, which Patrick, you specifically I know are a fan of that movie <laughs> yeah. which is supremely weird uh or just you know like how do you how do you structure that so i don't know that's part of the reason why we haven't done any of those yet i guess yeah
2: just a couple other uh hereditary cronenberg's videodrome because you and i became friends through, uh videodrome both Suspirias, uh the original argento yep. as well as the 2018 remake i'd like to cover both of them so those are just a couple more that like are on my the back of my head that I uh, I really enjoy. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised I didn't bring up Halloween three season. The witch is one of my favorite episodes. It's one of my favorite movies, but it's
0: not necessarily maybe one of my favorite episodes that we. It was done. a good episode. Just <laughs> it was a good episode. There were some that you know were surprising. I guess as far as how much I think we enjoyed digging into them. Yeah, you know, by the time this episode comes out, I guess we'll have our episode with John Brennan come out where we discuss SOV horror stuff, and uh, that's. A weird alley that i never thought i would enjoy going down as much as i did so that was a lot of fun we got into cannibal movies with andrew parker didn't even think we'd get into any of the cannibal movies yep definitely like took some weird detours that never thought we would and definitely some big movies that i figured we'd have done by now so either way we got a lot to look forward to with our next hundred question mark hopefully Cool. And last thing, while we're still kind of stroking our egos here. Yeah, because we haven't really let Patrick talk at all. Yeah, sorry.
2: But uh, (laughs) yeah,
0: we got some people we want to thank for coming on and supporting us and joining the conversation and had a lot of fun with. So Derek, rattle off that list. Yeah, so
2: I made a list from the first guests on. If I miss anybody, I highly apologize and please DM us and yell at me. But here we go. Thank you to your lovely wife, our first guest, Heather. Love you. To my best friend from high school and our second guest ever, Evan Maurer, Italian horror fan, James Hales. Friend of Heather and Aaron's, Crystal Rivers. My lovely sister-in-law, Lauren Wilson. Best friend from college and someone who doesn't really like horror movies but still came on our show, Jonathan Nowacki. Intelligent, kind, and crazy friend, Dr. Jeff Rogers. Uh, another high school friend, Devin, also big Carpenter fan. College friend and fellow Twin Peaks fan, Meryl Dakin. Mansfield's mom, Tammy, for our Mother's Day special on another Toby Huber classic. Our former roommate, good friend, director Zach Lampaloo. Check out his movie, 15 Things You Didn't Know About Bigfoot. Number one will blow your mind. Alfred Hitchcock, experts and authors, Jim McDevitt and Eric San Juan. Childhood best friend with a deep fear of snakes, Sean Mars. Good friend of the show and lover of film in general, Kelly Sherman. Alok Mishra and Naomi Grossman of the 1BR crew. Author VP Morris. Check out her books, Shadowcast and Dead Ringer. Freddy, superfan and son of Satan himself, (laughs) Damian Potesta. (laughs) Gotta get that in every time. Horror comic writer extraordinaire, Cullen Bunn. Podcast celebrity and all-around amazing human, Shelby Scott. Listen to You to Sleep Podcast. The Featuring X Podcast with Josh Hale and DJ Rollison, Original Holdenator and Madman, Andrew Parker. Check out Crypto Podcast. The Film History, The History of Film Podcast. James Scott, Drake Cummings, and Devin Muller. John Brennan of Last Drive-In with Joe Bob and Troma Fame. Actress and producer Elizabeth Piper S. Check out her movie, The Dark Offerings. And finally, the great Patrick Bromley for our 100th episode of F This Movie Fame. Member of the Chicago Critics and contributor on Bloody Disgusting. Corpse Club, Daily Dead News, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. (laughs) And listeners, go fucking listen to F this movie right now. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Now we can finally allow Patrick to speak. So.
0: Cool. All right. We always do recommendations as always, even though this will probably be a long conversation. Let's still do some recommendations real fast. So like always, we start with our guest. Patrick, what have you got into lately? What horror stuff have you consumed? Whether it's movies, TV, books, comics, music, games, anything, anything horror related. Um,
3: I've been trying to save a little bit for the coming weeks, but I do I did just start reading the new Stephen King book, Fairy Tale. Okay. Ooh, nice. I'm only maybe 100 pages in, but uh, so far it's great. It's hard to put it down once I pick it up. I watched Rebecca McKendry's movie Glorious on Shudder. Have you guys seen that yet?
0: Yes, definitely. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was a good one. I've not seen it yet.
3: It's about a, a Lovecraftian demigod who lives in a rest stop glory hole.
0: Yes. Voiced by J.K. Simmons. Right. That is such a good premise. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Definitely recommend that. That is on Shutter.
3: Yeah. Shutter just brought back. I don't know if they just brought back. I don't know how you guys want to handle the timing of this, but uh, (laughs) they recently brought back the 101 scariest movie moments. And so I've been watching that because back when that aired on like Bravo, that was it. I recorded that off of TV and would just watch it over and over again. Yeah. Mostly for the talking heads because I'd seen all the movies, but I liked seeing all the people interviewed about the movies. And so they brought back the clips and the guests and it's been a lot of fun to watch.
2: Yeah. I remember watching that Late at night
0: when I was I don't know if I was a middle school or or in high school by then. It had to have been high school, because I remember yeah. seeing that when I was kind of late in high school, and it was a good checklist of, okay, I've seen all these, but these are the handful of things I need to check out. Yeah, it captivated me when I watched it, because they had a nice
2: mix. I mean, I remember they had a whole segment about a, a scene from, I think, Dracula, the original Bela Lugosi Dracula and everything. So, yeah, I did not know Shudder brought that back, so I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, that's a good nostalgia trip. But the thing with Stephen King, because we brought him up a few times on this show, like his books, that is something that is interesting Interesting with him is he is good at writing a uh, books that are just so easily readable. It's it's kind of amazing, even if necessarily like it's not his best work. Every book is just very easy to get through. It's a page turner. The horror is usually on point. So I I didn't know anything about his new book didn't even know it was coming out because he just his outputs kind of ridiculous so yeah, right now that you mentioned that I'm gonna have to like put that on my radar
3: it doesn't seem super horror really it appears to be more fantasy again I'm only about hundred pages in so the plot is just starting to kick in but he's so good about making you want to keep reading because he'll just plant these little seeds in the middle of a paragraph where he's like I didn't know it would be the last time I ever saw him and then he would keep going and you're like oh now I gotta find out why this is the last time you ever saw him so I have to keep reading this to find out what happens to this
0: guy gotcha
2: right he's so
3: good at that
0: does this one seem to connect to any other of his work
3: so far is it
0: kind of an isolated thing it seems to be isolated yeah okay yeah because cool. we,
2: we had talked about that because i had read rose matter that i brought up on a few episodes ago and that one made a lot of easter eggs to like the dark tower series and just other works so we talk about the MCU all the time now but like it's funny how his books always had that kind of shared mm-hmm. universe mentality even back in the 70s 80s yeah
0: Patrick, have you got anything else? I'm, I'm kind of doing the same thing, just banking everything for next month, yeah. Right, right. No, that's probably it. How about you guys? (laughs) I've got two big ones. So I'll start with the one that I might spend
2: less time talking about. And this is kind of a discussion I think for all three of us, because I think all three of us have watched this movie and all three of us have something to say about this franchise I'm about to bring up. I'll start with the movie recommendation. I missed George Romero. We just did our zombie summer series earlier this year. I still wanted to watch some Romero. We haven't, beyond like the first three zombie Romero movies, we haven't really dug into him too much. And I got curious about... Something that just kind of got restored and thrown up on Shutter not too long ago. I watched The Amusement Park from 1975, okay. a psychological thriller horror movie.
1: Ah, two young lovers. You want your fortune told. We want to see what our life is going to be like. What part of life? When we we'll get old. Are you sure? Yeah. You must see it all to the end. Sure. There's nothing outside. I'm going outside anyway. There's, there's nothing Oh, suck. Suck One of these times, the door will open in your life and you will step into the amusement park. Well, no, it's Did fun. You'll like it. it. you really like it. Full of hope, anticipation for the future and curiosity for what you will find there. The man in the amusement park is a mirror image of yourself. Separated only by the passage of time. Why are you punishing me? me? Hello? There's nothing... nothing out, out there.
0: I'll see for myself.
1: Bye. I'll see you in the park. Someday.
2: I feel like it's his PSA to, like, hey, asshole, call your grandmother while well, she's still all around, you know? <laughs> but. I wasn't ready for it to be so it starts off like an educational video on like elderly abuse. It is very much tackling that. It's all about elderly abuse and like the depression of being abandoned by society once you reach a certain age and you're more in the way and everything. I did not expect it to be this psychological like and granted this predates a lot of David Lynch or all of David Lynch. I don't know, but it felt like I was watching a Lynch movie even at certain points. I haven't watched enough Romero to really kind of pick up on what sets his style apart from other directors. So this could just felt like a Romero to you guys. But there was some haunting imagery in this movie. One of the things I wasn't expecting were the brief glimpses we got of death, the Grim Reaper standing behind people, or like walking across the screen in the background when something's about to happen. It was kind of fascinating. I really enjoyed it as just kind of like an hour long thought experiment that he had. And that's what it, it felt a little bit less like a full movie and more like a thought experiment to me. But I really enjoyed it. Nonetheless, I'm very happy that It underwent this restoration, got the 4K version, I think, what, back in October 2019, and now it's on Shutter. I really enjoyed it, and it's just kind of something I don't think you would see nowadays, no, even
0: on streaming. These type of movies aren't out there
2: that much anymore, and I
0: wish they were. It's an interesting observation, too, because I think you and I specifically just, we know Romero as being an old guy. So it's an interesting movie for him to put out in 75 when he was not an old guy. No. Like you said, it's a very interesting interesting and thoughtful look at what it means to be older and kind of understanding that your place in society is changing and how you relate to people is changing and that kind of thing. So it's a very empathetic movie about what it means to be older. And it's just interesting that that's not coming from Romero before he died. That's not coming from a Romero in his 70s. That was coming from a Romero who was in his like maybe late 40s, 50s. So it's interesting. But like you said, it definitely is not a complete movie. You know, you can kind of see some of the edges and the editing a little bit. But it's an interesting experiment for sure. And I'm glad that we have it in the form we have it now just to at least appreciate it. Yeah. And if I remember reading about it, I think it was only like his fifth movie at that
2: point, if we even call it a movie. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I, I did find it interesting that it was actually going to serve as like an educational film about elderly abuse, too. So it's just kind of fascinating that I don't know the production history of it. Yeah. Patrick, I don't know if you know it more than I do, but just the, the idea that Romero got tapped to do this. Is crazy to me and, and But I'm glad it exists It's really fucking cool Yeah
3: Yeah I mean it does Definitely play Kind of like an educational Film It's kind of shot And cut like one albeit one with some Like you said Creepy imagery But I just love Romero so much And I love that He's incapable of making A movie that isn't thoughtful Yeah He could be cynical But he's ultimately A humanist And I think That comes through In all of his movies And I think it really Comes through in the Amusement park Yeah In terms of like Let's treat everyone With dignity And let's Yeah You know respect our fellow humans, regardless of what age they are. And I was really happy to be able to see it. I don't know how often I'll return to it. You know, there's other Romero movies I'll probably go to first, but I was really happy to have the opportunity to at least check it out.
2: Yeah definitely. We didn't bring that up as one of our episodes we're looking forward to covering, but there are so many Romero movies that we haven't done yet. Aaron has brought up multiple times now all through summer that we need to do Martin. Like he's chomping at the bit for us to do Martin. I'm still just waiting for that 4K that's just never going to come. <laughs> 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 but yeah, and just talking about like gut punch endings, what happens to the old man through the whole story and where it comes back to him in the starting room is yeah, really neat. It's a bummer. Yeah, that's it's a bummer. <laughs> for sure. But when he Signs off, but I'll see you in the park someday. That was where I kind of got a little bit chills. I was just like, <laughs> "Fuck, <You> know, like <laughs> I need to make sure my daughter loves me." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we we talk about fears and phobias. That was like the general premise of our show 100 episodes ago when we started what makes horror movies important. And I was not expecting to like kind of feel guilty and a little sad that I didn't have a a close relationship with any of my grandparents before they all passed. It also brought up really old memories like when I was in nursing school, and we started off in elderly care, like that's kind of the first thing they throw you into to see if you like have the chops to make it as a nurse. I saw it up front, I saw like kind of elderly abuse and abandonment right there in old folks homes. And this movie, even though it came out in what, 1975 is still it's timeless. Like it's something that's relevant today, maybe more so than it
0: was even then. Yeah. Nothing about the message of it aged at all. It's very universal. Yeah. 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 But
2: it's quick watch. Actually, it's less than an hour. It's 54 minute runtime, I think. All on shutter. Loved it. I thought it was a great experiment of a small film or PSA or whatever you want to call it. The second thing I'm going to talk about, and this is going to be one that I'm going to spend some time on because I've been reading through this book for fucking ever, and I finally got through it. (laughs) Being a new parent makes it hard to read. But uh, Aaron, you turned me on to the Best Movies Never Made podcast. You turned me on to the Halloween 4 episode of theirs with Grady Hendrix and I think one or two other guests. And they went through the three or four scripts of the Halloween 4 that we didn't get made. And they basically all took this book as the source material for that episode. Oh,
0: okay. That's what book you're talking about.
2: Yeah. Okay. So the book I'm going to recommend is called Taking Shape 2, The Lost Halloween Sequels by Dustin McNeil and Travis Mullins. There's a Taking Shape 1 or Taking Shape. I haven't read that one. That one's all about the production history of the Halloween movies that actually were made and like yeah. what the early script drafts were and everything else. This is strictly just all scripts that were pitched and like made it to a cod or Dimension execs and the wine scenes. And for whatever reason, they weren't picked up. My feelings about Halloween franchise in general are very conflicted. And my feelings through this book were very conflicted because it very much starts off and you know, rest in peace, don't want to disrespect the dead, but very much starts off with a very prode Mustafa Cod. The title quote for the book is Michael never dies that he's famous for saying And I'm a big Carpenter boy. Carpenter, even through this podcast, might be my favorite director of all time. And like, I do feel I feel this. like I don't know why this all happened like decade before I was born. I feel like this weird protection of like John Carpenter got fucked during the original Halloween and they made him do Halloween two and three. Halloween four like wasn't what he wanted so like at first I was starting off like no fuck this this sucks because John Carpenter rules as I was reading more and more through the book because they would have the interviews with the people that wrote these scripts everyone was like no Mustafa Khan and his son were like the best to work with any of the problems were usually through dimension or the Weinstein surprise surprise obvious but he was really a blast of a person to be around I do think the book didn't quite touch on like he was very dead set on making sure Michael Myers would stay alive after every single movie to make up for a sequel. He had these strict rules of Michael Myers must be very grounded. But then you look at, look at the, the final product Halloween and Halloween five track. and six. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, yeah, you're you're trying to make him out not to be zombie Jason, like unstoppable force. But he fucking survives so much and is kind of superhuman anyway. Yeah. So it was this weird confliction, but like this is a must read for Halloween fans in general. This is a must read for horror fans in general, I I think. Some of these script ideas are wild. Some of them are just flat out like there's no way this would work. Some of them were legit pretty fucking awesome. Like because I, I am also of the mindset. I wish Halloween did go the way that Carpenter wanted it where it was like more of an anthology. We got more movies like Halloween 3. Yeah. But I do understand where a cod was coming from where it's just we have this character, this pop culture icon. Let's turn it into a cash cow. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's a business. I get it. But like it kind of sucks the directions that some of these movies went in. But just to give you an idea, I have the book right here with me. Some of the scripts they run through are alternate Halloween 3 script. They go through about three different scripts for Halloween 4, including Hmm. a crazy script by horror writer Dennis Etchinson that had Michael Myers turning into a kaiju Michael Myers at one point, kind of. What? (laughs) Yeah. They go through the Halloween script that almost like got Quentin Tarantino produced in.
0: Okay, I've heard of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
2: they talk about they almost had a crossover between Pinhead and Michael Myers fighting each other. Weirdly enough, that was the closest We got to John Carpenter coming back on board for a movie before like Halloween 2018. Really? Yeah, there was a meeting, like a phone meeting that had Carpenter and Clive Barker on and they were both on board for like, let's make this Pinhead versus Michael Myers movie happen. They go through a lot of the scripts of the Lost Halloween 3D that would have been like the follow up to Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. They talk a lot about the Halloween Asylum script, which had different iterations that they tried to get off the ground. I really appreciated that they like start all the way from Halloween 3 and 4. And they go all the way to a couple of the scripts that we almost got before Jason Blum and all of them got involved for Halloween 2018. Yeah. And then they have a nice epilogue where they touch on like how Jason Blum got Carpenter and Akkad to both be on board for this new trilogy that's happening now. The book I think dropped right before Halloween Kills comes out. They had a thing of Michael Myers will appear in Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends at the end. It's a must read for friends of the Halloween franchise. It got me thinking more about the franchise and what I like about it. I know last Halloween I did a ranking of like the Halloween movies because I did that I watched the whole franchise up to 2018 yeah. well you missed one from
0: last year that just came out which mm, yes not that good in my opinion and then obviously we have one that's about to come out or will be out I'm not gonna watch kills
2: because like, it seems very much like a middling movie no
0: you gotta watch it if you're gonna do a fucking ranking you gotta watch all of them
2: no 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 I'm gonna watch all of them but I want to wait till ends is out out so I can watch sure, both of them, back just watch to back. them in
0: succession yeah 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 Just be prepared for a lot of, I don't know, I I have nothing original to say. It's the same feedback everybody's had for the most part, which is just everyone in the movie's a moron. (laughs) Laurie is sidelined for the entire first hour, just like in the second movie, the original second movie. The camera work is kind of all over the place and goes from being like really glossy music video to like. Network TV bad and just every other character, evil dies tonight, evil dies tonight, evil dies tonight. Just every other fucking character, evil dies tonight. <laughs> I, I know the meme, yeah,
2: I've seen the
0: evil dies tonight meme. So we'll do
2: a ranking later on. Like, we'll, we'll probably do a ranking yeah, in November, we'll, honestly. Yeah, we'll do that like, later. No, I've had a year to like have these movies sit in my head for a while. I'll give you all a taste because I'm gonna have to sling some hot takes at you guys. Here are the top four Halloween. My top four Halloween movies. Okay, undeniable Hall original Halloween 1978 masterpiece. Can't argue that. Whatever. Are you saying that is the
0: best, or you're saying that is your favorite? Because those are different things.
2: Yeah, I will say it's my favorite. I, I okay. can't be that contrarian. <laughs> but here's my number two, and one that I think I would watch more and put on more than the first Halloween is Halloween three: Season the Witch. Oh well, yeah, I've okay. said it a million times. Sure, I Moving love that on. fucking wild ass movie. <laughs> What's your three. Tom Atkins fucks. Here's my three. I loved Halloween 2018 it was a nostalgic cover blanket for me sure
0: yeah there's some stuff I like about it for sure
2: I like that they just do away with the sister angle altogether. I never liked that premise to begin with
0: let's I- jump back to that in a second because I'm curious to know Patrick thoughts on something there what's your four here's my four and my biggest take and I think
2: one that both of you actually will agree with me on but a lot of people won't the more I think about it I really fucking like Rob Zombie's Halloween too. I really fucking like that it's movie it's it's good. He handles the family stuff better than any other Halloween movie, in my opinion. He explores trauma in a way that's interesting. Yeah. It's bug nuts in the best ways possible. Out of all of them, I keep thinking about it the most. Like I keep going back to it being like, that is something that truly felt like someone took the ball and tried to take the franchise in a direction and make it their own,
0: mm-hmm. which I think is what anyone should have done. Something that you mentioned a second ago is actually what I was going to ask Patrick. So my opinion, the thing I like least about the older movies is all the Laurie and Michael R related stuff. Like, I think that's where the entirety of the old movies kind of falls apart because They have to fucking double over, triple over onto themselves to keep making that relevant and keep that from like stepping on its own feet. That's the thing that doesn't work. And I'm glad that the David Gordon Green stuff at least does away with that angle. And I hope that in this last one, they don't touch it. Just they already made the joke about whatever they were siblings and they're not. I think that's the best thing that does work about the zombie movies, though, is all the familial stuff. There's corniness to it, but I think that's what makes his movies actually work work for the most part. And I think it works better than it does in the original.
3: All of his movies to one degree or another are about families, whether they be makeshift families or actual blood-related families. So he's obviously really interested in exploring those dynamics and I agree that I really like it in his movies and I'm less crazy about it in the originals. I'm so happy that people seem to be kind of catching up to Zombies Halloween 2, which was really, you know, kind of hated at the time And now people are starting to kind of come around on it and be like, oh, actually, that's really interesting. And I think part of it is because the David Gordon Green movies are kind of doing what Zombie was doing a decade ago and was criticized for by making Michael into like the most brutal killer he could possibly be. Trying to explore this idea of trauma, you know, everything that's explored, I think, with Lori in Halloween 2018 is explored better in Zombies Halloween 2, in terms of like, here's what it's like to survive a slasher movie. Yeah. So I I'm with you. I like the family stuff in the zombie movies.
2: Yeah, and I'm glad you bring that up because two points that, at least at this time, and you know, my rankings may change even further, but Even though I do like the 2018 Halloween just a little bit more personally, it's not really original in any way because it's either like a nostalgia comfort blanket of the first movie or it is borrowing bits and pieces of things like the zombie one, like with trauma, because I do appreciate the portrayal of trauma in both of them, but I do think Halloween 2 handles it better. And I do think Halloween 2, being that it, it was really the first one to really capitalize on that uh, out of the entire franchise. And this brings me to my second point, Patrick, and you're kind of, I don't want to say to blame, you're, you're very much a reason for this. So, and I've joked about this in the past episode, Rob Zombie and Zack Snyder are two directors I don't quote unquote get. The difference is, I'm not interested in trying to get Zack Snyder. That just doesn't interest me whatsoever. I am very much interested in what Rob Zombie does in his movies, and even if I don't like a Rob Zombie movie, I want to watch it. I dig what he's trying to do. I want to become a fan of his movies. It kind of just needs to be a, either a couple of repeated watches or allowing time because at first Halloween Two kind of just blew me away with how wacky it was in some aspects. While I enjoyed it on the first viewing, I still was like, "Yeah, but you know, I like Halloween Four a little bit more," and I like this one a little bit more h2o a little bit more but now that i've had time to like let it percolate in my mind for like a year now like i'm like no that kind of beats the shit out of like all the old sequels to me except for halloween 3 which doesn't have michael myers in it anyway
0: (laughs) i think too as much as i like horror trash in general and just as much as i like genre trash in general you could do a lot worse than rob zombies second halloween movie you could do a lot worse like for as much hate as he gets you could do way worse you could do incredibly worse so no it's one of those things like once you watch enough movies especially as many as i have or as many as patrick has you kind of start to appreciate stuff like that a lot more and you kind of see what he was doing and where he's pulling influence from and the kinds of actors that he's kind of pulling back out in those movies that you can appreciate yeah
2: the thing that's kind of drawing me more and more into rob zombie is how much of a fan
0: of the genre he really is. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's why fans like his stuff for the most part, because it's all the same stuff everybody else likes.
2: Yeah, and I don't mind his music. I listen to some of his music as it is anyways. I like that he crossed that bridge between music and movie making, and I want him to put out more movies because we touched on it earlier with the amusement park. We don't see too much originality these days especially in mainstream movies. But like Rob Zombie is doing stuff that's original enough that it sets itself apart. And I'm glad that he's at least getting somewhat bigger budget movies. So we we can at least see something a little bit different. And even if the movie doesn't work for me, I I appreciate it more than other movies that might barely work for me. But it's kind of all cookie cutter, kind of take it back full circle. Yes, taking shape Two, Lost Halloween sequels, Recommend that book. Weirdly enough, I think it was in the Michael Myers first Pinhead one of the scripts for that. They did explore the idea of trauma because I think it begins at an Alcoholics Anonymous type of group, but it's all for slasher victims. So like they would have tried to have cameos of other slasher movies. Sure, yeah. It would be like Jamie Lloyd from like four or five or six Kristen or whatever name is in Hellraiser. They would have tried to got Friday Thirteenth and this and that. Yeah, just there. to kind of cross everything over.
0: It would have been an interesting thing, but yeah, it never got made. It would just be Pinhead Michael Myers. Literally sitting in the back of the room, feet kicked up, eating pudding cups, and just being like, hey, remember that guy? Yeah, fuck him. <laughs> just, that's all it would be. It would just be that for the entire movie. But yeah, check out that book. Really interesting. Cool. Well, uh, I will be kind of quick with my two. New one first. I saw Barbarian.
1: Yeah.
3: This is 476 Barbary, right?
1: Yeah, I'm renting this place.
3: No, I booked it a month ago.
2: Are you sure you have the right place?
1: Yeah. What am I supposed
2: to do? Why don't you come inside and we'll call these idiots. Why don't you just crash here? Oh, no. I don't know if you've got a great look at this neighborhood, but I don't think you should be out there by yourself. It's dry and there's a lock on the door. By the way, I'm Keith. Tess. You take the bedroom and I'll sleep out here on the couch.
1: <sighs> oh God.
0: Perfectly natural. Directed by Zach Kreger from The Whitest Kids You Know, starring Georgina Campbell, Bill Skarsgård, and Justin Long. This one was interesting. General premise, and I'm not going to talk about this one super deep because the marketing seems like it gives a lot away, but it kind of doesn't. I, I've heard that the less you know going in, the better. Yeah, the better. General premise, and this is just the trailer, but woman arrives at an Airbnb, discovers it's double booked, and a guest is already there. They decide to both stay and just kind of figure it out in the morning, but of course, bad shit starts to happen. I really enjoyed the first half of this more than the second half. Very, very relatable scenario that you play out in your head in real life all the time of what would happen? What would I do in this situation? What would happen if this happened? Oh, gee, I would never want to be in a situation like this because blah, blah, blah. It plays out that kind of stuff. But once the dread and the weirdness starts to kind of kick in, it's very propulsive The audience that I was in was kind of chattery, and once the weird stuff starts happening... Silence. Dead silence. There is a really palpable dread and just sense of weirdness. And where is this going? How far does this go? In that kind of house of leaves, what are we getting into? Kind of way. That's kind of the most I can say, really, without getting super spoilery. I don't, Derek. I know you haven't seen it, Patrick. I'm not sure. Have you seen it? I haven't had. I'm dying to see it, but I haven't yet. Ultimately, I guess the best I could say is the first half is Carol Clover's whole idea of the terrible tunnel to the max. We'll probably get into some Carol Clover in a minute, but uh, <laughs> yeah. very similar to, let's say, another movie, also set in ruined Detroit, also featuring a scary old man actor briefly. <sighs> I found that, like, where this movie goes ultimately was not necessarily my bag. It just kind of goes to a very obvious conclusion when it sets up something that is seemingly promising a lot more. Performances are good. Overall, performances are great. You know, I wonder how much of the dialogue was ad-libbed, because, again, this is the whitest kids you know crew making a horror movie. Uh, Maybe too many endings kept kind of hitting a point where i thought okay is that it and ultimately the ending that it does get to is another like okay i'm going to sit here i'm staying here and is there more to this than where this seems to land <laughs> but ultimately i mean this was a lot of the carol clover kind of formula of a slasher movie to a t in a lot of ways So I'm not quite sure how I feel about it yet. You know, I I think I need to see it a second time. I definitely want to like talk to more people about it and get their feel on it. But I just I have literally not bumped into anybody yet who has seen it. So yeah, I'm I'm very curious to see what other people think about this one, but I mean I I had a fun time, for sure. Um, I just don't know that the whole entire thing works for me, because the first half works really well for me. It is very much the kind of fever dream bullshit that my brain clicks into at night. It's kind of similar to a weird dream that I wrote down and have been kind of writing a short story around that, Derek, I know I told you about. But ultimately, it kind of ends in a very weird, whitest kids you know sketch kind of way <laughs> there were some moments in it where I was definitely cackling I was dying maniacally laughing in a theater full of people who were just like miserable <laughs> so there are at least those kinds of moments. Next thing I'll mention, so like a recent episode where I saw a movie that was related to somebody who was in the movie we were discussing, and I decided to jump in anyway, I was digging through Carolyn Williams' IMDb and just looking at what else has she done, and I saw a title that I was like, wait, what is this? I know this, I've heard of this, let me check this out. And that is Drifting School from 1995.
1: An out of control nuclear satellite is on a collision course with Los Angeles. A government attempt at destroying the nuclear satellite brings about chaos and destruction that sends Monroe High School 200 years into a desolate future. From inside the school, the students think the world has been destroyed. Incredible. The whole city. The whole city has been wiped out. Only to tragically discover that they are the ones who have vanished into a future world devoid of present-day life forms. Trivision Entertainment proudly presents Billy Drago. I guess little Bobby's turn to die. Look, you don't decide when we eat or anything else. On Melendez, can... Bubba Smith. It is too dangerous to let anyone outside. I don't know a human being in Los Angeles. Only cockroaches! Henry Silva. <laughs> He's over at the high school watching Jonathan Game. Maybe I should get over there. Caroline Williams. Andrew Barrish. I'm busy right now. Come back later. And introducing Drake Bell as Kenny Scott in Drifting School, based on a best-selling comic book from Japan.
0: Then I realized, oh shit! It is a remake of a Japanese movie called The Drifting Classroom from
1: 1987. Oh, okay.
0: That was directed by Nobuhiko Abuyashi, who did House. Oh shit! So it's okay. This
1: insane
0: made for Japanese TV movie based on a manga of the same title. Yeah, I'm I'm looking up the manga right now. Yeah, It's an international school in Japan that disappears into a time slip along with the students and the teachers. They reappear in a future apocalypse hell desert filled with giant horseshoe crab monsters and time tornadoes. (laughs) One of the kids has a psychic connection with his mother in the past of course and the kids are like trying to figure out how to get everybody back home (laughs) i remember listening to a pure cinema episode i cannot remember for the life of me which one where elric i think mentioned it in passing (laughs) so once i like saw wait okay Carolyn (laughs) williams was in a remake of this let me watch both and i found both of them online they're both like on archive.org they're fairly easy to find but they're not on any kind of mainstream streaming.
2: <laughs> was The Drifting Classroom like the best movie you've ever seen in your life? Because that premise is fucking buck wild, man. It
1: was pretty
0: <laughs> rad. I mean, there were some long sequences where it was just a lot of camera shaking around violently in <laughs> sand and kids screaming. And you're not quite sure what's going on because this is VHS quality. Troy Donahue, who all I have ever seen him in is <laughs> the Sandra Dee movie A Summer Place. And he's the dude in Godfather Part 2 that Connie remarries, if I remember correctly. And he's like in Crybaby. Like, that's all I've ever seen this dude in. And he's the main teacher in this. The remake or no, I'm the, this, assuming or, the this remake. original one. This original one. Oh, he's the original. Okay. Yeah, cool. because it's <laughs> it's a large chunk of American kids and actors, because this is like an international school so there's kids from all over the world at this gotcha. school in japan the main kid's mom she was in a bunch of other obayashi stuff the teacher's secretary that's kind of becoming the weird surrogate mom for all these kids keiho Minami, she was in the great yokai war which was one that i mentioned on the show a while back That was like a takashi yeah. miike yokai movie She's currently in Pachinko, which is one of the Apple TV shows. And uh, she was married to Ken Watanabe for like 13 years, which, cool, like from 2005 to 18. So, yeah, that original movie's. Bananas. And then, like I mentioned, there is a 1995 remake, which is a strictly like English language, English cast remake, still directed by a Japanese director, Jinichi Momura. And like I mentioned, this one has Carolyn Williams in it playing the mom who has a psychic connection with her kid in the future apocalypse. It also has Henry Silva as a military commander, because by the way, same general plot, but this time the time rip is caused by the US government using a space laser. To destroy a spy satellite that's crashing to Earth. And so Henry Silva is the weird dude behind the desk military guy. Fucking Billy Drago is in this as a like murderer who's literally like in a Michael Mann shootout through this city with the police and he ends up hiding out in the high school when it gets transported. Hill Harper, who's in a bunch of Spike Lee stuff, is in it when he was young. Bubba Smith is in it, which I just saw him recently in that other Carpenter movie that I I mentioned to you. I didn't mention it on our show. It's one of the weird scripts that Carpenter wrote and didn't direct, Black Moon Rising, about Tommy Lee Jones having to steal the fucking supercar and Linda Hamilton being kind of his romantic foil, which is really cool on one hand, really gross on the other but yeah this one was real bad you know everybody is kind of given their best but this one is definitely like cool so let's take the idea of Drifting Classroom not have a director who has a weird art film music video commercial background and we're going to give them like $20 of budget (laughs) you go from having like giant horseshoe crab monsters attacking the kids to like literally it looks like a dollar store rubber green dinosaur we did discuss sov movies with john brennan was this like an sov movie it was not sov but it was very low budget yeah, oh it's it's very low budget this very much felt like an extended weird episode of power rangers that never actually goes <laughs> sentai it felt like do you remember that movie escape from dinosaur city that was like some weird yes. VHS hole yes. kind of thing from when you and i were younger like yes i do a lot of that kind of stuff So, yeah, it sure it was Adventures in Dinosaurs, Adventures in Dinosaurs. Yes. Yes, Yeah, I do remember that. It very much had that weird kind of full moon kids movies from the early 90s kind of feel. So yeah, weird sidetrack to go down. They are definitely more sci-fi than horror necessarily, but there's definitely some horror stuff in there. And I think at least for the what the fuck factor in the cast alone, it's worth checking both of those out, especially Drifting Classroom, the original one. That one was kind of wild. And it ends in a way where you're like kind of having your heartstrings pulled at a little bit, but then also you're just going like, wait, so that's how, that's what, that's where this movie's going? That's how this is going to end? What? <laughs> The <laughs> Um, It just has such a bananas kind of ending that, again, I'm crashing at my parents' house while we're in the middle of moving right now, and uh, my mom was, like, half-watching it with me the entire time. It was just like, what is this? Is that how this ends? (laughs) That's (laughs) what's happening to these kids? Okay, sure. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun watching. Obayashi's
2: house fucking rules, so, like, I would expect this to be at least interesting to watch, which, just kind of breezing through his whole career, like, what a wild career, because, like, he made him movie in 1998 and then didn't make a movie until 2014. And he's put out three movies since 2014 up till 2019. So yeah, I, I didn't even know he was still alive. I forgot that we discussed that on House yeah. when we did that way back.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and like I said, as much as I just said that first one's wild, it's so much weirder that I'm even letting on like they <laughs> find a weird little like cricket alien puppet that literally pees water into the kids mouths. There <laughs> is a pizza what? delivery guy who goes full psycho crazy and is trying to murder everybody and he's like hoarding all the food in the cafeteria there's all this weird rivalry between the main kid and the other bully kid but the other bully kid is just he's like a little white kid with his prep school jacket on and he's constantly talking about damn I've missed my shot the big game and he's just constantly talking about how mad he is that he's not going to like go to this basketball tournament
1: what happened to my big game tagger where did it go Don't ever lose hope, Mark. It's all we've got. Hope? In this situation? What kind of hope can we have here, Taggart? Do you still have hope? My big game is gone. Everything's buried deep in the sand. Mark, please. What am I to you? I guess you were once my princess, but... That was when I was a kid. When you were a kid? Right. Now I'm an adult. And I can't afford to dream
0: but they literally are beating the fuck out of each other in the middle of a hellscape desert trying to prove who's going to be the dominant (laughs) one in the apocalypse future. Like, it's insane. It's like at Lord of the Flies. Yeah, yeah. A little bit. This is a little bit Lord of the Flies, and, yeah, it's bananas. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend checking out that one for sure. Okay, well, enough of that. Let's talk Texas Chainsaw
1: Massacre 2. 13 years ago. Audiences across America were horrified by the savagery of a faceless killer. In the wake of this bizarre rampage, he vanished. Now, after more than a decade of silence, he has come out of hiding This Chainsaw Massacre 2. The Buzz is back, directed by
0: Toby Hooper. From 1986, directed by Toby Hooper, our main man who loves Dr. Pepper and big old nasty Monte Cristo cigars. (laughs) This movie was, of course, written by Hooper and LM Kit Carson, which I've got a weird side tangent I'll go through when we get there. But I guess first, before we dig in, Patrick, what is your relationship with? The Texas Chainsaw movies as a whole, but specifically, I guess, like the first one and kind of into the second one. When did you watch these movies? You know, how did you feel about them at the time? Because obviously like one and two are
3: very different from each other.
0: What is your background with this movie specifically?
3: I saw two as a kid before I ever saw one because I had seen a clip from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, in Terror in the Isles. Yeah. And okay. uh, it freaked me out. I was like, oh, I don't know if I could handle that movie. That seems too real. But there was something that felt artificial and safe about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too. As a kid, I couldn't really appreciate how sophisticated it is, but. I grew up with that one a lot more and probably didn't see the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre until maybe high school. And I recognize Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a true masterpiece. It is the movie that gave Toby Hooper a career. It is the movie that I think legitimizes him to every horror fan. You can win any argument by saying like, yeah, but he made Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) So I will always love it for that. I think it's arguably the best horror movie ever made. It's not the one I gravitate to. I gravitate to the second one. I gravitate to his sillier, more cartoonish stuff. And maybe that's just because, you know, there is something about the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre that really does kind of shred your nerves and it's not a pleasant experience. Yeah. But everything post Texas Chainsaw I come back to over and over and over again whether it's Eaten Alive or The Funhouse or his canon trilogy. I'll watch those movies again and again and again. I kind of keep Texas Chainsaw on reserve for like special occasions. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. We yeah.
0: definitely I think are kind of on the same path. Texas Chainsaw was the first movie that we ever covered and that was very much by design, because that is still, for me, the tip-top all-time greatest horror movie. You know, as much as I also love The Shining and The Thing and, like, all the other kind of classics, that, to me, is still kind of the tip-top, you want to define horror movie in a dictionary, there it is. That one has burned such a weird hole in my head that I can't quite shake. And it wrecked my wife when I showed it to her for the first time. It's wild. You know, there's, there's no way to really describe like the kind of impact that it had beyond just it redefined modern horror, you know, just like psycho did the decade before that. But two has always been one that I have always loved. This was one that the weird movie guy at our local movie place kind of slid me growing up and was like, here, don't tell your mom guy. <laughs> and, you know, went home and watched this and it just hollowed my head out like a canoe just the entire time growing up. Probably should not have run around quoting Chop Top, you know, at my <laughs> plate, you dog dick. And just the weird neon grand guignol kind of feel to the whole thing like it feels like going to a spirit halloween store that is actually run by people who genuinely care about halloween and horror and not just people who were there to like work a job for a month it feels like going to halloween horror nights and just going to like big giant walkthroughs because the sets in this movie are amazing there's just something about like the weird texas indie cred that i really jive with from like the Hooperness of it all to just Dennis Hopper being in this movie (laughs) of all people, especially at like a really interesting time in his career. So yeah, this is one that like I've always had a blast with. And like you said, I appreciate the first one. All hail the first one. This is the one that I usually put on when I like want to have fun and just kind of unwind and enjoy myself. I mentioned earlier, Derek, this was your first time watching it. So like, Hmm. what are your thoughts as a like completely fresh, had no idea what to expect kind of person?
2: Cause you guys are Toby Hooper, super fans, Patrick, You've stated that he's like your favorite director ever. You might be more of a fan of him than even Aaron is. I'm going to have to table set a little bit again. I enjoy the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I do think it's like one of those capital H important horror movies. This felt like if George Romero had directed Night of the Living Dead and then turned around in whenever 1984, 85, when Return of the Living Dead came out. I know it wasn't George Romero who directed that, but this would have been like if he also had directed that movie. Sure. I know Texas Chainsaw, the first one is the more important movie in the world of cinema. Here's the thing. I love the shit out of this movie. More, okay. like, right. I personally like it a lot more. It is more enjoyable. I figured between, this was going to be like, the case.
0: I just wanted to see like where you landed.
2: And one week I've watched it three times and had a blast every time I watched it. I fucking love it. It is my Halloween 3 to Halloween. This is my Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 to the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes, I know the original is important and technically the better one. This is the one I would prefer to put on at any time. I'd have more fun with. It is generally fucking funny in a very dark, sadistic way. Yeah. Chop Top is just as memorable of a slasher horror villain as Leatherface is. And that's wild to me that basically in his one franchise created two of the most memorable horror movie icon slasher in my mind, and I'm a little bummed out that Chop Top isn't on that same level as, like, maybe even Leatherface is in the modern sense. I'm glad that, like we talked about with Rob Zombie, a lot of people nowadays seem to be going more and more back to Texas Chainsaw 2 and
0: realizing how great of a movie this is. And on that note, too, like, I think, Patrick, you might have been who put this bug in my ear forever ago, but whenever I hear people say, like, Rob Zombie is just ripping off Texas Chainsaw with House of a Thousand Corpses, no, they're fucking wrong. He's ripping off Texas Chainsaw 2. (laughs) Like, that it's the movie <laughs> where he's really like pulling a lot from. There's nothing wrong with that. I wish more
3: yeah, movies no. up <laughs> to. Like, yeah, you
2: know, this movie fucking rules. It's Dennis Hopper right after Blue Velvet, which is also another fucking wild Dennis Hopper performance and one of my other favorite Dennis Hopper performances. But this movie is also like possibly my favorite Dennis Hopper performance,
0: oh, yeah. and he's way insane overacting in this, and he is yelling about the coming condemnation of the Lord and (laughs) I'm gonna like salt the earth and destroy all evil while he's literally (laughs) dual wielding chainsaws bury it all to hell but it (laughs) totally matches the pitch of the movie like there's nothing wrong with that performance when it literally matches everything else in that movie that everybody else is doing
2: yes I love I love love, and I know this probably pisses off some people I love 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 that this is a canonical sequel to the first one and the tone is such a tonal whiplash difference oh yeah I I fucking love that again this feels like if Romero actually was the one who directed Return of the Living Dead because there's also a bit of punk rock energy to this movie that I also love like hearing the cramps goo goo muck which is one of my favorite cramps songs of all time hearing that right before like she confronts Chop Top this movie it feels like it was made for me and then Chop Top talking about riding the infinite turtle of the waves of fuzz into forever or whatever I, I pulled it up but I figured Aaron you're gonna probably just splice that whole like Chop Top quote into our episode. Sure, I'll throw it in. <laughs> uh, I,
1: I wanna, I wanna buy some, uh, radio ad time. Are you fucking crazy? We are closed. Off the air till tomorrow. You'll have to just come back.
0: No, but, but yeah, but, whoa. So, this is Radioland, huh? The infinite turtle, the, the waves through the ether fuzz roll on forever. Roar!
1: You're my fave <laughs> me and Bubba my little brother we listen to you every night <laughs> music is my life <laughs> but
0: yeah like I think I've used the like
1: music is my life gift with you like <laughs> yes. a
0: thousand times and you probably had no idea like what it was from <laughs> and I now want a music is my life chop top shirt
2: yeah I've seen that shirt before hear and us and really rags it, you
0: know? we need that <laughs> shirt just give me a yeah. neon shirt with chop tops face on it music is my life and you know what
2: because i do want to take a back seat on this episode to you guys because you guys are like the super fans of toby hooper and this movie but real quick i'll get my piece out of the way of like horror newbies. you might be a little confused if you've never seen the first texas chainsaw Massacre. but this movie i feel is a lot more digestible
0: in turn for anybody it is
2: very very dark
0: comedy and it's like nine million times gorier because the first movie famously yeah is not is not but this one's not nearly as intense yeah
2: yeah it's very gonzo energy to it i have to hand this movie, despite all of that, there were two or three jump scares that legitimately got me, at least the first time Yeah, that I wasn't expecting. That fucking scene where he he runs at her Mm -hmm. from, like, the record room. Love it. It, Toby Hooper was so genius with that scene because that's out of the first Texas Chainsaw level scare, and then immediately turns into a gag because he accidentally hits Chop Top, and then, like, (laughs) Chop Top makes fun of him. He curses at him and stuff, and I was cracking up on the couch by myself. You
0: wrecked my best, Sonny
2: Bono wig! (laughs) Yes! and then he does it again when like during that tunnel chase scene it was very reminiscent of uh, Leatherface's first appearance in the first movie where he kind of just comes out of nowhere with the hammer so there is a degree of like jump scare and horror still very much buried into this movie so thumbs up I'm a scaredy cat who absolutely hates jump scares and I fucking
0: had a ball with this movie I can get through it anyone can get through it I'm I'm sitting here laughing at myself because you're like anybody can get through it and I'm just thinking of Carolyn Williams wearing someone's face (laughs) yeah Uh, so I guess it depends on what your stomach is is for gore. You know, I don't think the movie is necessarily that intense, but you know, it is a lot of gore in this for sure. But it's all
2: context because like everything leading up to that is kind of batshit hilarious. I mean, I feel bad for saying that somebody like got skinned alive and then their face got put on someone else's face, but all of it felt like a gag, like a really weird dark fucked up gag and it worked.
0: Yeah, the surreality is great. I love just going from Drayton holding a trophy filled with nasty chili that's dripping all over his ugly jacket with teeth yeah with, uh, with, with teeth, with teeth. <laughs>
3: one of them hard shell peppercorns yeah yes <laughs>
1: it's the second year in a row this year drayton you've got to tell the secret of that fabulously tasty chili <laughs> no secret it's the meat uh, don't skimp on the meat uh, I, I got a real good eye for prime meat mm. <laughs> runs in the family <laughs> whoop whoop it's one of those uh, hard shell peppercorns. <laughs> I gotta say, I love this town. This town loves prime meat.
0: Yeah. You know, going from that kind of ridiculousness to just straight up peeling people's skin off and smoking them, so good times. Just real quick, th- th-
2: if we're going to throw out scenes that like had me almost on the floor laughing, that whole part where he goes to the chainsaw store, buys the three chainsaws, and then starts testing out the one, Yeah. and the guy who owns the chainsaw store is basically like having an orgasm watching him. All of that made me laugh so
0: hard. Yeah, I love any movie that has a weird scene like that <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, <my kid> <laughs> The one that I think about constantly is Planet Terror, where all of a sudden they like hand the guns over to what's his name, and he just kind of has that maniacal look and starts spinning them, mm-hmm. and the camera just zooms in on Jeff Fahey's face faces. He just goes like, "That boy's got the deal, huh? he's got the devil in him like that's exactly kind of what that
3: was
0: (laughs) with that old guy just my banana. there was like a little bit of tim and
2: eric like weird surrealism anti-comedy to that scene that i really dug yeah so i'm gonna kind of step back let you guys really go at it uh the thing i wanted to ask you patrick specifically because this was really good the timing of this recording because fairly recently you put out an article on bloody disgusting about like ranking all of toby hooper's movies and I read through it, and the thing I found the most interesting is when you got to Texas Chainsaw 2, you called this the most Toby Hooper movie, maybe, of all of them. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wanted to pick your brain. Like, what do you mean by that specifically? Again, we've only covered so far the first Texas Chainsaw, Poltergeist and now this movie. So we still have a ways to go through his whole filmography yeah. on our show. And I don't
0: think you've seen any of his other stuff.
2: Not really, no. So, like, what do you mean by that quote? Because that's something that like I don't really know. Um,
3: gosh, how do I explain it? I feel like it's the kind of thing that would make that will make sense when yeah. you see more of his movies, but yeah. The way that it combines horror and comedy in a really over the top way the way it kind of devolves into sheer madness by the end I mean most of his movies eventually break down the characters until they're insane by the end the way that the set design is so detailed but also very artificial there's just all these touches that this to me feels like this is the movie that really sprang forth from Toby Hooper's brain which isn't to say that this is what he would have made the first time because I think, you know, the original Texas Chainsaw is the exact movie he wanted to make, but I think this one has more in common with the rest of his filmography. It's sort of like the platonic ideal of a Toby Hooper movie.
0: Gotcha. That that makes sense.
3: There's yeah. also
0: a lot of exploration of class in his mm-hmm. movies. Like that's mm-hmm. a very common theme that runs through all of his stuff. This movie specifically is very much this blue collar working class family is just trying to stick it out and oh, these, you know, yuppie asshole kids. And there's a lot of that kind of running through his movies as well. There is a lot of looking at the weird breakdown of American values and the American family throughout all of his movies that's not quite as present in stuff like Life Force, for instance. Right. But like, that's a huge factor in Invaders from Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, that's obviously a big thing in his Texas Chainsaw movies. It's obviously the entire crux of Poltergeist. So there, there's a lot of that type of stuff that you start to see throughout all of his movies. And just kind of also looking at how people are transformed themselves, whether it is some type of obsession or a possession or outside forces acting on them. It's all about how people are evolved and transformed and driven to like some type of next level state one way or another. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, this this is a very good distillation of kind of everything that he typically works on like Patrick said I love the sets in this movie this is fucking Pee Wee's Playhouse redesigned by Rob Zombie from from hell yeah <laughs>
1: right. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I absolutely
0: uh. love it this is like if the Sawyers were opening up their own Benigan style restaurant where you gotta put all the dumb shit around the walls that's what this would be it would be like tableaus of skeletons playing cards and hanging out in beach chairs you know it would be the like slim Pickens skeleton hanging from the ceiling right in the bomb down <laughs>
2: and I, I love the idea that after the first texas chainsaw happens sally gets away she reports what happens they can't find them and in that time that means that leatherface like got his shit together after spinning around in the middle of the road they got the hitchhiker nubbins brought his dead body back to the house cleaned out their entire house of yeah. all the bones and, bullshit erased and everything like, yeah whatever, yeah like then moved to texas and took over an abandoned theme park And then, like, take the idea of the Texas Chainsaw House, make it less grimy and more like y'all were saying, more artificial, more like Spirit Halloween, and then multiply it by a thousand with how many fucking people did they actually have to kill to line that entire tunnel out with skeletons, that whole wall with guts coming out of it. I love how the movie never addresses any of that. It's just it is like this is what it is. And there's no way in reality like these dipshits would be able to like do something like that, but in the reality of this movie, which isn't concerned with trying to like deal with any kind of realism in that regard. Yeah. They escaped the house in the first one. This is where they are now. And they've just been getting fucking away with it. And if we want to talk about other themes and like real life horror shit that this movie even, kind of pokes at right at the top failure of the police department of the state troopers of yeah. just like dismissing like the car accident is just like two guys just having a blast before the big ut oklahoma game yeah just some kids
0: fooling around oh yeah by the way one of them was decapitated <laughs>
1: lieutenant enright sir we heard you might be headed this way uh you come on for the big game you know why i'm here yes there's something about chainsaw killers your brother's kids killed But that was 14 years ago, sir, way down in South Texas. Now, these are other kids. This is just an accident. Just a couple of wild punks out raising hell. Yep. One of those boys so wild, sawed his own head off, going 90 miles per hour. (laughs) Hell. Hell's exactly what they raised. Yeah,
2: and there's slashes, like, uh, chainsaw slashes all over the vehicle. Yeah, okay. But yeah, like, failure of authority right there. We we come time and time again back to that theme, Aaron, in in horror
0: movies. Which, that's another Hooper theme. The more you get into his movies, there is very much a, like, disdain for authority. There is very much a, like, anti-establishment kind of thread that runs through all of his movies you know whether that's his personal self kind of coming out or just his reflections on working within the Hollywood system little by little or you know who knows but there's definitely like that thread that runs through
3: all of his stuff as well. And that's something that I feel like runs through the works of most of the great masters of horror that they all have a healthy mistrust of authority and sort of disdain for the establishment. One of the things I love most about Texas Chainsaw 2 and that really resonates with me is that the reason that the Sawyers are kind of able to get away with it for so long is because they've become such successful capitalists.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. absolutely.
3: You know, that by succeeding in the Reagan 80s, no one would think to suspect them of these heinous crimes, even though they're literally feeding people back to themselves. They're hiding in plain sight by being such successful capitalists and that it's such an indictment of Reagan 80s economics. I love it.
2: Yep. Yeah. And it was, yep. it was interesting to me that they're more concerned with not getting caught about murder, but the fact that that got air blasted out is going to ruin them selling. Yeah. It's going to ruin their business. That's what they're more concerned about. Ruin their business. Yeah, they're more worried about that. I noticed that throughout the movie that that's what they kept coming back to. And then you even have, I feel like the character Chop Top itself is just a whole metaphor for like post-Vietnam everything. Like just Mm -hmm. soldiers being left up by the wayside as well as what happened during that war. Here you go. Like this is what we created out of that. And you see it right there on the screen and like basically is like a hillbilly joker. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) There's even a deleted scene where they're like on their way to go hunt and kill a bunch of people at a movie theater. The one with Joe Bob in it, right? Yeah, Joe Bob shows up in that little bit. But yeah. while they're driving, Choptop does specifically say, like, don't forget who's responsible for all this, you know? And he, like, taps his plate and is like, you know, if I hadn't had this right here, we wouldn't have the money to get this whole operation together. Again, just commentary on the fact that, yeah, if we uh, didn't literally build the entire U.S. economy off of throwing people into the meat grinder that is post-World War II military-industrial complex, would we have uh phones in our pockets? You know, would we have all of this comfort that we have on a consumer level if we weren't still having to throw people in and like, oh, by the way, we like got Wi-Fi out of that in the process.
2: Oh, and there's there's also a degree of the people not caring where like the meat came from. Like, yeah, they joke about like, oh, what's your secret? And he's like, it's all about the meat, and no one really kind of questions it yep. from there on. There's like, well, all we want is the product. Yeah, like, who right. gives a shit
0: where it came from? Right. We don't yeah. want to think about any of the process or the people that it affected or any of that yeah so yeah it's it's interesting that this movie kind of came out at a time where it was far enough out from the original movie that you could really objectively look back and see the impact and legacy of the original movie by that point you know a lot of times you'll immediately jump into making sequels for things and there's just not really an idea of like where to go go with it necessarily because it's not clear yet what cultural impact the first movie has made beyond it made a lot of money but this movie was made at a point where you could look back and say like well text chainsaw one had a massive impact in all these different ways you know and he was very reluctant to come back to this from what i understand it was all just part of that big canon deal that he made but it's interesting that he swerved right and he just took the time to look back and just satirize the hell out of the original movie i wanted to ask both of you guys about this because i didn't look anything up i just wanted to kind of talk through it
2: did his reason to take it in this very black comedic route was that also kind of in response to being like i'm sort of being forced to make a sequel so he just said fuck it like here you go
3: yeah it was a situation where you know he had this three picture deal with canon he wasn't supposed to direct it he was just going to produce it and then they couldn't find a director who was willing to work under the time constraints that they had and for the budget yeah. that they had
0: gotcha and for the pay too right
3: you know? so he decided to direct it and yeah part of it is about he has claimed that he thinks the first one has a lot of humor in it but nobody got that so he was like well I'll just bring yeah. the humor out even further and part of it is definitely about burning the house to the ground yeah when Dennis Hopper is at the end of the movie taking down Texas Bad to land and scream bring it all down that's toby hooper making sure everybody's dead making sure that nobody makes another texas chainsaw movie just (laughs) burning the fucking house down yeah everybody
0: is dead by the end no more sequels this stops here right Well, kind of to
2: take it back to like what I talked about with the Taking Shape book and seeing what happened to Carpenter or other masters of horror, other directors in general, did that have any effect on like his decision to do this? Well,
0: he still had kind of the keys to the kingdom. He he could burn it down. I'm sure it did to a degree. I mean, the other good example that's very similar, Joe Dante had no interest in revisiting gremlins. I mean, I'm thinking about that because I'm seeing your gremlin shirt that you're wearing. (laughs) I'm wearing my shirt. Yeah. But it was very much one of those like, well, they want me to do this and like, fuck it, I'll do it. But I'm going to have fun with this, you know? I'm going to at least make something that I couldn't get away with otherwise, yeah.
2: I almost drew comparisons, comparison instead of like the What If Romero had directed Return of the Living Dead. I almost attributed like Texas Chainsaw 2 to, to Gremlins 2, but I, the only reason why I did it is because the Gremlins 1 is is also clearly pretty comedic, whereas the first Texas Chainsaw really isn't. I mean, in our eyes,
0: it isn't. To Toby Hooper's it is, but... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> One of the funniest <laughs> things still to me ever is, look what your brother did to the dog. Or, like, that line always fucking kills me. Because that is some weird dad energy that I totally remember from growing up with three brothers, yeah. It's interesting you bring that
2: up because the more I thought about it, there are sprinkles of what would lead to Texas Chainsaw 2 in the first one with the cook. The way he acts, even in the first one, is pretty bombastic in the shit he says. Sometimes it's kind of funny, like the door. And then you also have Leatherface sort of being goofy in a couple scenes in the first movie. And then they, like, ham him up a lot in this movie. One of the things that made me laugh repeatedly through this movie is that kind of war dance sort of thing he would do where he holds the chainsaw yeah, above the, his head jiggle. and yells and then just jiggles. He does it like five times. It cracked me up every time.
3: Leatherface is a is a scared kid in the original. You know, there's that scene yeah. where he keeps yeah. looking out the window like, oh shit, I'm going to be in so much trouble. And he's a teenager in this one. He's a horny teenager, you know, and so I like that yep. they kind of took him in the next logical direction. Gunnar Hansen didn't want to come back because they only offered offered him scale so bill johnson yeah. stepped in and he's i think he's so funny in a wordless role like you guys were talking about just his physicality i think is so funny oh man the way he licks his lips yeah. and his eyes kind of dart around all the time yeah. his performance cracks me up that whole scene
2: with like where she kind of seduces him at first it's it's a little horrific but then like it seemed like his chainsaw got stuck in the ice and he starts like spraying water all over and then he's kind of like doing a double take at her. That's where I was just like, are they really going to do it? Is he really oh, going to yeah, go no, here? Yeah. And he
0: does go there. He creams his chainsaw and can't get it started again. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>
2: All of that was just—it's demented, but it's so fucking funny, and it works so well.
0: As far as his performance, I love the moment where at the end, you know, of course, the rest of the family finds the two of them, and Chop Tops, you know, Bubba's got a girlfriend. Bubba's got a girlfriend. Bubba's got a girlfriend.
1: Bubba's got a girlfriend. Bubba's got a girlfriend. Bubba's got a girlfriend. Bubba's got a girlfriend. Bubba's got a girlfriend.
0: <laughs> just the way that he kind of looks over at her, like you said, just his eyes dart. He's just like, well, I mean, I mean come on, like, well, it, just, like, it's kind of like weird, rolling your eyes. teenager your yeah. kind of way, like, come on, look, tell me oh, you're my girlfriend. It's very much that kind of energy, but it's a great, like you said, just wordless performance the entire time. So, yeah, I love the fact that the reason why most sequels, prequels, reimaginings, legacy sequels, whatever you want to call them now, don't work is because again they're they're just trying too hard to recreate the original rather than reframing the impact and the iconography of the original one and finding a way to kind of move forward with that. You know, it's the Force Awakens thing. It's like, cool, this is just a lot of the stuff we know and respond to, but like does this actually kind of move the story forward? You know, I like elements of Halloween 18, but it's kind of the same thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah, as much as I like Halloween 18, I like it because it's a comfort blanket. Like It
0: is just more of the same. The Texas Chainsaw remake from 2003 is kind of a perfect example of why you don't do that, because that movie is just...
2: I don't know. A lot of people, there are a lot of fans of
0: that movie. Sure, but it's a lot of people who are our age... Who saw that movie when they were in middle school, high school, when it came out, and that's their first exposure to Texas Chainsaw. They yeah, never seen any yeah. of these originals, right? And, like, that's fair, if if that's kind of where you're coming from, but if we're talking about this movie, like, why this movie works is because it does take that swerve, and it still is dissecting a lot of the actual interesting under-the-hood stuff that Hooper's interested in, but it's getting to be something that is more accessible in a lot of ways, and it's definitely, like, more fun thrill ride and yeah it's more on the nose with what it's maybe trying to do but that's also kind of it's making it more fun like it's just making it like a more fun experience because it's kind of looking at what the original one did and says okay cool i've already done that let me do something different this time and you go from that gritty, grainy verite to, like, neon lights and 80s punk music and, like, cowpunk stuff specifically from Texas and just lots of winking, right? Just nonstop wink, wink, wink.
2: Yeah, to the point where even, like, Stretch's arc almost oddly mirrors Sally's to the point where, like, they basically get in the same situation where, like, Grandpa's gonna hit her with the hammer. In this movie, it's more of, like, a gag. And in the first movie, it's more, like, fucked up
0: and there's this snuff film-esque kind of edge. Edge to it. But you're right too when you say mirrors. Mirrors not meaning same thing. No, mirrors it's not the same. They are yeah. going in opposite directions. Everything that yes. you're looking at is opposite to that. Sally is trying to escape the horror. Stretch is going toward the horror. You know, Sally is helpless and trying to like just survive by the skin of her teeth. Stretch is directly taking charge of the situation. You know, literally diffusing a chainsaw wielding brute killer by saying, can we talk about this, right?
1: <laughs>
3: there's
0: a huge difference between them, but they are mirroring in that they are going through the same journey, but they are doing it in that fun house mirror opposite kind of way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Again, with this one, you know, there's no promise of this is a true story. <laughs> Not at all. Right. In no way, shape or form would you believe this is a true story could happen. There's no slow burn opening full of dread and ennui, right. This is a couple of Reagan douchebags getting loudly. Chainsawed for their douchebaggery,
3: right? <laughs> the movie starts off with that. No one lives forever. Oingo
0: Boingo. Oingo Boingo.
2: Yeah, yeah. that whole scene fucking rules. Yeah.
1: yeah. Come on, get out of here! Where'd he come from? All of of shit. He's all Just keep driving! Don't come on! Hey, let's go! Come not on! Let's so you doing? God damn it! What uh, you got there? <laughs> <of> <laughs> What? Come on, what is that? I don't believe it! Yeah, you man. Oh, God! Oh, God! Oh, God! Oh. Oh. Yeah, come on! Get out!
0: And again, like this movie's not trying to play reality at all, because they seem to be driving on a bridge that's nine miles long, right? Endless, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and you can literally see the end of the bridge while they're shooting it the entire time. But, you know, where the first film is minimalist and very quiet, very quiet except when it's not, and just unbelievably free of all the explicit violence, this one is just chocked full of maximalist sets and lighting and insane Tom Savini gore and just nonstop screaming, you know? God damn, I didn't even realize Savini was involved with this one either. Yep. Dude gets around, man. Yeah, (laughs) massive step up from, you know, first movie. Yeah. But it's, it's just such a perfect sequel, all said and done. Both movies are exhausting, but in different ways. And just the whole criticism, too, that this movie's not good because it's totally opposite to the first movie is just kind of baffling, considering, like, this one leans even harder into the whole Grand Guignol kind of excess. And, you know, the idea that once a series or kind of concept devolves into parody, that it instantly is on the decline, right? That's the signal that this thing is going downhill and is not worth anything anymore. That's just not always the case because this is a perfect example example of that being kind of a more weird transcendental elevated kind of evolution of what the original thing was which again is that's a perfect sequel that's what you want out of a sequel you want to like have the stuff you kind of know but get something completely that you weren't expecting so it's very perfect in that sense
3: Derek I'm so impressed that you responded to it so favorably on one viewing because I think a lot of people reject this movie outright Because of the tonal inconsistencies, because it's not telling you when it's being horrifying and when it's being funny. Instead, it's just doing both of those things simultaneously. Yeah. So you'll get a scene where Leatherface is putting LG's face on stretch and she recoils and she says, maybe my favorite line in the movie It's wet, and (laughs) it's the most horrifying thing, but I can't help but cackle at the line, it's wet. I think audiences have become a lot more sophisticated in 2022 than they were in 1986 when this movie was widely rejected. Because I think people just did not know what to make of it. And I think, like so many of the great masters of horror, Toby Hooper was just a guy working way ahead of his time, and people had to catch up to what he was doing. And I think audiences have finally started to do that.
2: So to kind of answer that, I think the reason why I did respond so positively to it on one viewing and then immediately turned around and watched it two more times, (laughs) and it goes back to like my ultimate Halloween is always John Carpenter, if we're going to keep going back to that. And then I, I appreciate Season of the Witch for that same reason of just, it takes it in a new direction, but the difference is like, I feel like when people try and like make something bad shit, when there's multiple producers involved, multiple directors involved, it's kind of just like, this is what sort of happened. It's kind of a mess that comes out. The difference with this is, all of this is intentional Mm -hmm. yeah it feels like very much toby hooper it's he's such a good director that like anyone else who tried to like make such a tonal whiplash would fail miserably and and granted it's easy for me to say this in 2022 back in the time it did fail in a way because it was so negatively rejected at the time but you're right patrick in retrospect and like with the sophistication where we are now as viewers and consumers of media we get it we get the joke we get the premise but even then I I still would argue that any other director trying to pull this off wouldn't have been able to do this part of it also is the person who is intentionally doing it is fucking Toby Hooper who he is a master of horror for that reason and all this movie really did is make me excited to return to Toby Hooper more in our our podcast because also too if we didn't make it clear enough for you when we did Poltergeist with your mom Mansfield Poltergeist is a Toby Hooper movie not a Steven Spielberg movie I, I I can't believe
0: we still have to say that yep another criticism of Hooper that I hear all the time that drives be crazy kind of along that same note is just he doesn't quite know what he's doing or it's not purposeful or it's accidental with him or whatever And I have certainly on this show kind of brought up that I don't think he is always a thousand percent cognizant of some of the stuff that is naturally coming out. You know, I think some of the other like Masters of Hard TM guys kind of overthink what they're trying to say. And sometimes it becomes a little too pointed and on the nose. And I think Hooper is just so much more natural about that stuff just coming out in his work. This movie is kind of a good example of that because there is stuff coming out where you can tell, okay, you clearly read, again, Carol Clover's whole dissection of all of this stuff kind of at the time, you know, he didn't have that in his head at the time. You know, we have that in our heads now when we're going back and looking at these things, but he didn't necessarily have that take on his original movie when he made the second one. But the fact that there is so much of a difference in terms of the final girl trope and all of the like gender stuff that's going on and the sexuality that's going on in the second movie, the fact that there's so much of that happening, and it wasn't like okay, cool, we've now had all of this reflection back on it to kind of guide the way, shows like he's he's thinking about these things, right? Like those those wheels are turning and he's looking at not just his work, but the landscape of horror as a whole, and he's looking at where things have moved and the tropes that have evolved just the other stuff that's out there. You know, obviously this is in the middle of the 80s i mean this is the height of the slasher movie and the whole final girl trope and everything else you know i was gonna
2: say and i don't know if you guys agree with this or not but i think this is kind of what you're going to aaron other observation i made is this felt like a parody of also horror movies and slasher movies that we we saw post the first texas chainsaw post halloween post friday the 13th throughout these years even before Scream did the same thing in the 90s. Yeah,
0: it's it's very self-aware of what all that looks like. Yeah. yeah, I felt a lot of parody of the horror genre in this movie, too. Yeah. If that makes sense. Absolutely. The fact that, again, Stretch is such a good character because she's not a final girl. She's the girl, TM again she takes initiative from the beginning to kind of uncover what's going on when nobody listen to her you know she knows there's something up you know she confronts that danger without blinking
2: if I would have seen this back in 86 and I was
0: a teenager I would have crushed real hard on Caroline Williams in this movie I'm not gonna lie Uh, which by the way Damien shout out to you thanks again I've mentioned it already but thanks for the uh, signed photograph of her and Hooper I very much appreciate it once we get moved in to our new place I I will absolutely frame it hanging up in the office. Anyway, yeah, like, she's often in peril in this movie, but she's never without her wits and her guts. Like, she always has those two things. She, she doesn't have any other, like, physical weapons, but she always has that, and the way that she kind of always puts herself right back in control of the situation because she knows how to wield her sexuality. You know, she is not the virginal kind of character that the final girls typically tend to be. She knows what's up. She's also empathetic because she understands kind of how to talk Leatherface down, you know, but at the same time, she can also fucking wield that chainsaw at the very end of the movie. Like she's a very interesting and well-rounded character, and Carolyn Williams is awesome in the way
3: that she brings that to life. Yeah, I I'm such a fan of her performance in this movie and the degree to which she just completely goes for it, putting all her trust in Toby Hooper and just being willing to Breakdown, but never like Sally in the first movie is driven to complete madness. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to call her weak because of what she goes through obviously I would have broken far sooner than Sally yeah. so I'm in no place yeah. to throw yeah. stones Absolutely, but Stretch remains strong throughout even as she's broken down even as she's screaming for the last act of this movie she remains strong yeah. and willing to continue to fight for her survival as opposed to just escape and I think Caroline Williams just nails every beat of the character I think she's so good yeah,
2: yeah. and that final shot with her Basically kind of mirroring the Leatherface dance at the end. That scream didn't it didn't feel like a scene of madness. It felt like a scene of primal victory right, or right. overcoming this massive obstacle. It's definitely just like
0: a fuck
2: you right. yeah. a
0: victory cry. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Which what a final cut like final scene. What a final shot. Yeah. The cut to credits. Yeah. Like that was perfect. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> you ruined grandmother. You killed her, even though she's like a bloated corpse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were talking about Leatherface a minute ago. But, you know, his actual development into a real character in this film, you know, makes him less scary in some ways, but kind of more scary in others. You know, I think he is one of the more interesting slashers throughout that whole entire phase of movies, partly because he's not over explained but also because he's just a little bit unknowable. I don't know, like this movie, like we said, definitely kind of, he's a horny teenage boy. Either you were a horny teenage boy or, or you had to deal with horny teenage boys. Everybody can relate to that one degree or another. But overall, like he's no longer kind of this unknowable character who just takes care of his one responsibility to the family. He's, like you said, kind of this fully engorged teenage boy now. who wants to use his chainsaw on anything that moves. And you can tell that he's incredibly confused and aggravated by that. You can tell that there is conflict in him of, I have these urges, what do I do with that? And that in its own way is totally terrifying and dangerous. Well, and couple
2: that with his family. Yeah. you have Chop Top and the cook are like the only two people you can like figure out what these urges are about.
0: Yeah. And all they do is tease and egg him on. Yeah. They right. don't like actually yeah. try to understand any of it. They just kind of poke him and prod him even more. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's the type of danger that stretch knows how to deal with because she's clearly been doing it her whole life. You know, like we literally see in the film earlier how she's, gotta just be completely blunt with LG and be like dude I'm not interested you know like she's clearly been dealing with this for a long time and knows how to handle herself in those situations but again like it's also interesting too that by the end of the film Leatherface is ironically the one who's penetrated by the chainsaw and Stretch ends up kind of being the one to swing it in the air Mm -hmm. on top of the mountain at the very Mm -hmm. end you know and obviously the chainsaw equals dick metaphor is visually present but it's way more about again Stretch kind of claiming That power and control more than anything. It's very interesting that all of that is present in this movie. And yet people still want to be like Toby Hooper is just kind of a fluke right? He's passive, doesn't understand what he's doing in his movies. It's all accidental if anything. No, no way. No. no way. And then, of course, like we said, that's it. For end of the franchise, everyone's dead. There's no more movies past this one, right, guys? <laughs> yep. That's it. We're never going to talk about Tex Chainsaw ever again. Nope. So, <laughs> overall... Doesn't the third movie have some fans? I have a soft
3: spot yeah, for Yeah, people... It tries to recreate one a little bit more, and I like Jeff yeah. Burr. He's a good director. It's got a little Caroline Williams stretch cameo. She's now like a TV yeah. journalist, so I like that but for me it's I'm ride or die for the first two and I can kind of take or leave yeah. the rest of the franchise.
2: That's kind of how I think I would feel because the only other one I've I've watched and I watched this back when it did come out when I was a teenager was the remake. One of the few horror movies that I did go out of my way to watch rented from my local blockbuster. I, I rented the original Texas Chainsaw and even as a teenager that blew my mind wide open as to like I was watching something that was beyond anything I'd ever seen before and then I very soon after that watched the remake Remake and I, I remember being pissed off the remake, even as like a 16, 15 year old kid, uh, or whatever, how old I was when I came out when I didn't really have nearly the taste or experience with movies as I have now. And it's honestly a movie I don't really care to revisit, even if people go back and say, Well, that remake actually wasn't too bad. I do think after watching the second movie, I am totally content with revisiting the first one, like you, Patrick, every so like special occasions here and there, and then revisiting two all the time. Yeah. Like I'm happy with these two. Yeah.
0: I know I've definitely mentioned the sequels before on a previous episode where I just kind of said fuck it and like went on a deep dive because there were some of the remake new series stuff that I had not seen. After watching the 2003 remake, I was just kind of like I'm done. Like I don't I don't need to see any of these new ones that they're making. You were so mad once you got to the latest one. You were so pissed off when we talked about that. Yeah, the Netflix one especially that just came out is just the worst wild trash. I don't even want to talk about it. But anyway, the third movie I have a little bit of soft for simply because it feels more Texas. TM, in that it is in West Texas, there are cactus, there are tumbleweeds and coyotes, and it just kind of has that feel a little bit more when you imagine Texas. There is also kind of that element of not knowing like who the authority figures are or are not, which that's also one of the things I do like about the remake. I like the addition of Arlie Ermey as the cop figure, which that is completely undone by those later movies anyway, when Find out, oopsie's not actually been a police officer this whole time. But that entire, like, weird notion of do I trust them? Do I do exactly what they're telling me to do? Do I listen to this figure of authority that clearly seems to be malicious and, like, does not have my goodwill in mind? Or do I risk trying to run? That whole element adds a different flavor to it. But none of those movies are fun. That's kind of the other problem. None of those (laughs) movies are fun. They're all very grim and they are all just kind of draining and where they try to be horrific, I think they kind of belly flop a little bit. So, I don't know. I don't have any real use for any of the newer stuff. Even the like next generation movie is, there's wild batch of things I kind of appreciate about it, but it's just kind of overall like a weird mess. These two, kind of like we've said, that It's kind of where the book stops for me so I guess to kind of move on from here Lefty Dennis Hopper is kind of the other weird corner of this movie this was at a really interesting point in his career where he had made the full movie star cycle of initial big breakout success maybe getting a little bit too much into his own ego completely falling off into drugs and rehab then disappearing entirely and now this is kind of his weird comeback period yeah was this like Right after he got out of, I don't know. I don't know. Did he check into
2: rehab or did he just he
0: went through a phase for a couple of years where he was dealing with everything and trying to get clean and in and out of rehab and just generally like struggling to get work and just build trust in everything else. Yeah, this was like a weird moment in Dennis Hopper's career where he was trying to kind of get back in the groove again, and honestly, this is kind of where a lot of my favorite performances of his kind of settle, between this and... Out of the Blue, Blue Velvet, and River's Edge. Like, he just did a lot of interesting stuff during these couple of years. (laughs) You didn't name the Super Mario Brothers movie. That movie's insane, but (laughs) he is kind of fun in a terrible way. I kind of love that movie, yeah. I love it for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, and he's, like, great in speed as the villain in that. He had a good run of stuff right around here. But he's interesting connective tissue to the original movie. It's interesting in terms of like a reminder that the characters from the first film weren't just fodder. They were kids who had lives and families and kind of dreams that were left behind. I felt a little guilty because we dunked
2: on Franklin quite a bit when we covered the first I movie. I will
0: continue to dunk on Franklin because <laughs> Franklin is
2: just kind of a obnoxious character. Him showing up as a skeleton in this, which hilarious that the the Sawyers decided to drag his skeleton all the way from their house from wherever in Texas up to where they live now but uh, yeah him and Drayton the cook are like the two reminders of the first movie that I I wasn't expecting yeah and for some weird reason I went into this movie sort of and and this might have been where I mixed up this with the remake some weird reason I thought like Dennis Hopper was going to be part of the clan it would be like this twist but I'm glad that didn't go that route yeah
0: Yeah. either yeah totally the other thing too that's interesting is like despite all the goofiness of this movie having him be this reminder of the first movie and a reminder of the characters of the first one helps reinforce just how dangerous the Sawyers really are by kind of showing just how uninterested and banal their way of life is. They don't care. Who are these people? They don't know. You know, what does it matter to them? But they matter to Lefty, ultimately. That's why he's been on this, like, whole cross-Texas vengeance trip for years, trying to track them down and find them. And the cook gives no not one shit. When Lefty shows up seeking revenge for his niece and nephew,
1: I'm the Lord of the Harvest.
0: Who's that? Some new health food bunch. What's that? Some new health food bunch. When he's like, "I'm the Lord of the Harvest," <laughs> yes. right? He doesn't care. It's, it's the whole like, "Do you know who I am?" No, it, don't care. Whatever. It's a Tuesday.
2: Yeah, it's like the Thanos meme where he's just like, "I don't even know who you are." To sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and if we want to talk about like we brought up very early on during recommendations the exploration of trauma in horror movies but slasher movies specifically like there is a a little bit of degree of that even in this I think the most gut punch scene in this entire movie where it does kind of like stop and sort of remind you what the Sawyers really are like is when he finds the skeleton of Franklin I wasn't expecting that and Hooper spends just enough time on that kind of serious note before jumping back into the insanity then that's all you really need that's all you need to remember what happened in the first movie before the movie movie continues on and like this movie is very breakneck speed from start to finish at least it yeah. felt like for me whereas the other one was much more somber but it, it still offered that somber note with the skeleton of Franklin
0: yeah let's move on to talking about the background a little bit we kind of mentioned some things as far as the production history and making of and that kind of thing but you know the original concept for the sequel that Kim Hankel and Hooper came up with was going to be like an entire town of cannibals and it was titled Beyond the Valley of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which... You know, that would have been, like, a great coup to, like, not only make it extra campy, but also just as a good middle finger to Ebert as well, too, which I love Raj, but he was always super hard on horror stuff. Yeah, he did not like this movie. Oh, he didn't? I'm shocked. Yeah, exactly. But to completely lampoon a trashy movie that he wrote himself years prior, like, would have been a great kind of fun ribbing middle finger. Cooper wanted to add way more black humor or red humor now, as we call it, I guess, thanks to Mick Garrett. Well, I was going to say, Patrick, again, your article on Bloody
2: Disgusting called attention to that to me as well, because yeah. I had never yeah. heard that
3: quote before. Yeah, that's a Mick Garris line. That's great.
0: Yeah, that's very much becoming a common phrase yeah. at this point that he's coined. So I appreciate that that's starting to pick up in the horror community. But, um, you know, he, he wanted to kind of emphasize the humor and just kind of as a good we already talked about while I have the keys to the kingdom let me go ahead and just do what I want where this kind of really took the turn was Hooper met Kit Carson allegedly at the Chicago airport when they were on their way to Cannes apparently Hooper met him when he was flying out there for the original movie, and supposedly, they set up a screening when he got back for Carson and Paul Schrader. Paul Schrader keeps crossing into my life in so many weird different ways in this last year, but Hooper and Carson tried working together several times, and nothing quite worked out timing-wise until this, finally. So this is where I went down like a wild rabbit hole, doing some research on this, because... I, you know, generally knew like okay, Kit Carson, Kit Carson, I'd heard that name thrown around a lot, but I had never really dug into anything that he was involved with. And then the more I did, the more I realized like, oh wait, no, I've totally run into his stuff before previously. So he started initially in acting, first appearing as the title character in Jim McBride's David Holtzman's Diary, which I just watched that for the first time recently. It is on Tubi for free if anybody wants to check it out. But he met Dennis Hopper on A press tour for Easy Rider. So right off the bat, he has like a very early relationship with Hopper. He directed The American Dreamer, which is the documentary about the making of Dennis Hopper's crazy fucking weird acid Western, The Last Movie, which also is kind of nuts and I'm glad I watched that finally after hearing about it for a while where it kind of started to veer off was like okay wait he's the guy who wrote the weird American remake of Breathless with Richard Gere and he wrote Paris Texas which I don't know like how I did not make that connection that is one of my favorite movies and I just always associate it with Vin Vendors not oh somebody else wrote this a Texan wrote this movie obviously Harry Dean Stanton Natasha Kinsky, Dean Stockwell and Hunter Carson who is is his son from his marriage to Karen black of all people. Right. Carson and Black would appear together two years later in Hooper's remake of Invaders from Mars, which was part of that Canon Films deal that led to Texas Chainsaw, which weirdly enough, the cross pollination between Carson and Hooper and the fact that his son and his ex-wife are in this movie that Hooper's making after they had already been divorced, like all of that is just how did that come together? (laughs) Carson is also family friends with the Wilsons. Their sons, Owen and Luke, who produced a black and white short film that was titled Bottle Rocket, directed by somebody named—hold on, let me check my notes— anderson comma wes <laughs> so like wild that carson would then go on to produce the feature version of bottle rocket later and the oddball thing that i ran into was there is this movie from 2000 directed by runa ben dixon called bullfighter this movie is written by kit carson and his son hunter adapted from a screenplay by ben dixon he wrote this weird story. They turned it into a screenplay. I don't know how they got connected because Runa Ben Dixon was a member of a Danish techno group called the Overlords. The fuck? Along with Christian, parentheses, Ian Johansson, who is Scarlet's half-brother. Other weird deep connection here, Vanessa Johansson, who is also an actress, played a small role in the 2008 remake of Day of the Dead, which I mentioned on one of our summer episodes. Yeah. I told you this is a rabbit hole. After spending a decade in music, Runa Ben Dixon started directing their videos, and then he started doing commercials. And then he got connected with Carson, dot, 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 somehow or another. Carson and his son Hunter write this movie based on this Danish techno artist story. It is about a drifter who is obsessed with bullfighting, who is framed for the murder of a mob boss's daughter. While on the run, he discovers that he is a descendant of Templar Knights... And that his girlfriend is a pregnant holy virgin. Okay. This film stars Oliver Martinez, who Hollywood was trying to make into a dude around this time. And then here's the rest of the cast. Willem Dafoe, Jared Harris, Michael Parks, playing exactly the Sheriff What's-His-Face character from all the Tarantino and Rodriguez stuff. And that's not by mistake. Come back to that. Michelle Forbes. Donnie Wahlberg. Donnie Wahlberg. I just got my tongue ripped out. I've just seen some puppets. <laughs> Assumpta <laughs> Cerna, dominica Cameron dash Scorsese. <laughs> Fucking Martin Scorsese's daughter is in this movie. And then there are cameos by Kit Carson and Hunter Carson. Runa Ben Dixon is in his own movie. And then Robert Rodriguez and Guillermo del Toro play two assassins that are going (laughs) after the drifter guy trying to kill him and this is robert rodriguez in full all black cowboy boots with his bandana and this is guillermo del toro in a black suit with weird little 90s glasses and like an uzi Fucking Willem Dafoe is a monk. He's like literally a friar who is in Mexico. Of course he is. Five minutes of it. And he literally transmogrifies into a Templar knight. It is one of the most perplexing things I've ever seen. And the only reason why I watch this is this movie has... You do know we're talking about Texas Chainsaw yes, 2, right? but I, and I told you this was a <laughs> rabbit hole. Deeper than the fucking Sawyer's weird layer underneath Battleworld. This movie has a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Whatever. Rotten Tomatoes doesn't really mean anything. This movie has a 2.4 out of 10 on IMDb, which like... Mm, that's kind of wild yet on the other hand variety named runa ben dixon one of the quote 10 directors to watch back in the year 2000 so that weird back and forth i had to watch this it is on two for free it is one of the most perplexing awful fucking movies i've ever seen in my life and it's wild to me that kit carson wrote it what is this and it's weird to see like where his career went after that, because that movie was such a huge, weird, massive stain, flop, etc., on pretty much everybody's career, except for like the people who were just there for a day, who did a favor, walked in, shot their stuff, and left. But yeah, Kit Carson would later reprise the David Holtzman role in a movie directed by Griffin Dunn called Lisa Picard is Famous. He was in Roman Coppola's weird sexy Euro caper satire CQ. And he's in a 2010 short film that Kirsten Dunst directed called Bastard. So he has, like, such a weird back and (laughs) forth. What was this guy doing, like, back and forth? But, like, that's the same kind of weird, non-sequitur nonsense energy that this movie has. And I'm very curious to see, in an alternate universe, if I could like look through the looking glass, what does Texas Chainsaw 2 look like with no Kit Carson? What level of weirdness did he bring to this movie and contribute to the story? Because we talked about all the things that are in this movie that are very Hooper. Just discussing Kit Carson's career with you guys, I can't pin point what Kit Carson would have brought to this movie when you consider the fact that he is a dude who wrote Paris, Texas and then wrote Bullfighter. You know, that, that's like the weird thing that I can't parse is what did he contribute to this story overall? Patrick, thoughts? Yeah, like,
3: I, I don't know. Uh, because I haven't really ever considered what is the through line of his filmography. I mean, the only thing that jumps to mind immediately, and I know this was a movie just completely written on the fly. They tell stories about how Kit Carson was writing scenes during the filming and they would have to stop him because yeah. they already shot that scene. So yeah. he obviously has some strong feelings about his home state of Texas. And yeah. I, I'm sure a lot of that finds its way into Texas Chainsaw 2. But beyond that, I don't know like what a Kit Carson movie looks like, really, having not seen Bullfighter.
2: <laughs> well, Tamir, your thought, this is from someone who has zero fucking ex- exposure to him
3: beyond this movie,
2: Texas Chainsaw 2. I would agree with you. I would theorize if he is a Texan, wrote Paris, Texas. I'm assuming all the Texas stuff you see throughout between the backdrop of the UTOU game, between the final shot when she is holding the chainsaw screaming, it zooms back and you see the Texas flag on top of that mountaintop of the texas world theme park amusement park whatever it is a part of me still leans that that's still hooper but like maybe he kind of had some say in the texas aspect of this because yeah. this, this felt even more like texas horror in some ways than the first movie did at least in terms of actually like seeing the texas flag and all yeah. that shit
0: this movie is more texas tm but in a v- very cartoonish way, like in a very ridiculous over-the-top way. Like, yeah,
2: bigger in Texas kind of cartoonish <laughs> yeah. way. Hooper yeah.
0: literally himself is one of the rowdy dudes in the hotel and he's walking past with his cigar and his longhorns hat, right? This movie screams ridiculous Texas.
2: Well, and the movie starts off with those two, like, most obvious victims, I think, in movie history. Yeah. <laughs> this yell, hook'em horns! Hook'em horns! Yeah.
0: Like, that's the opening lie. <laughs> yeah, so, like, that's what I kept thinking this entire because as many times as I've watched this movie, I've never considered, like, okay, yeah, Hooper, like, co-wrote this with Carson, but what did Carson bring to it? you hear all the stories like Patrick said about the script was apparently a rainbow because every page was a different color because it was a different version every single day constantly <laughs> rewriting stuff, you know, but it's just wild me trying to figure out where did this dude come into this whole thing?
2: Uh, I'm guessing it all comes back to our thesis of this entire episode is that Hooper was really the glue that held everything together. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, yeah. Kit Carson could have had crazy ass ideas that were very much in line of her wearing LG's face and the whole scene where he wins the uh, award for the chili and there's the tooth in the chili. Sure, he could have had that manic energy, but I think maybe even in a way that Hooper either kept it together or like even toned it down to at least this level of satire we're dealing with in this movie. Yeah. But it's hard to say that because this movie is also fucking crazy in so many ways.
0: Yeah. After the success of Poltergeist, like we mentioned earlier, Hooper took this three picture deal with Canon. The whole deal was two of the movies can be whatever you want. So what was the other movie? So it was it was Life Force in eighty five. Oh, Life Force. Okay. And then he remade Invaders from Mars also in eighty six. Yeah. That movie and this movie came out, Texas Chainsaw came out within like months of each other. That's Crazy. Yeah, but the deal always had to be, like, the third movie was a Texas Chainsaw sequel. As far as, like, Carson goes, I think this is kind of the main thing I found as far as his involvement was he just kind of became, like, Hooper's dude in Austin. And he's really the one who got together the film crew. He recruited... Richard Corris as the DP, who was Hooper's original choice for the first movie, which, again, if we're talking about the tonal differences in this one, the cinematography alone between the first and the second movie is such a huge, stark difference. So, you know, imagining, like, the look of the second movie, but if it was the first movie, you know, and losing all of that weird, verite, semi-documentary kind of feel that the first movie has, a lot of that snuff film feel kind of goes out the window. There's not a whole lot of hand handheld camera work in the second movie, for instance. It would have been very different. Yeah, Chorus came on for this one. They got a local artist named Carrie White to come on for the production design. Tom Savini obviously did the makeup, which we talked about earlier. Hooper's son, William, worked as a model maker for the movie as well, so he was kind of involved the entire time. Nice. Right before the production started, and this is just the shitty things that always come up that we talk about in so many movies, that Derek, you were just like flabbergasted whenever you hear these kind of things right before the production started uh canon was like yo you now have one million dollars less for reasons Cool, thanks. That meant, like, all these last-minute rewrites, which didn't help, considering that the schedule was so tight. If I remember correctly, they, like, signed paperwork in January, and the movie had to be, like, out in August.
3: Yeah, they started shooting, I want to say, in April. Yeah. Super, super quick turnaround.
0: But that's canon for you.
2: So, they had to secure, I'm guessing they had to secure Texas Battleland. I'm sure they had to do some kind of write to get that, right? Sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, you always have to secure all that stuff, but all the layer, for instance, all of that stuff was built in an abandoned newspaper factory. Mm -hmm. Just this huge weird wide open space that they just started filling with garbage and bullshit and sewer pipes and lights. It's incredible. That's like one of my favorite movie sets ever. Just this massive abandoned space. It's abandoned hell lair. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) All the exterior stuff was this defunct amusement park. So like, it wasn't in operation. They didn't have to like clear everybody out and only shoot at night. Like we talked about with, you know, the Monroeville mall and Dawn of the dead and all that. This place was abandoned.
2: I think it was a similar situation with the amusement park, which I brought up earlier. Yeah. Where they shot it had just shut down. So they were able to like, just kind of go
0: in and do it. Yeah. But they like sent out teams to scour the entire state just to get bones. Bones and bones and bones. They literally went to all these ranches and slaughterhouses. So real bones. Yeah. And just got as many bones as they could that they could turn into like decorations and furniture. They went and got old broken furniture and literally repaired the furniture using the bones they found. There's a lot of bones in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. They scoured junkyards and antique stores and donation stores. They just got lamps and Christmas lights and just all this bullshit for all these sets to practically light them to that's something else I appreciate there's always the weird neon lights coming from places where lights wouldn't normally come from in this movie but yeah. it just adds so much atmosphere to the place like why are there all these neon lights at the radio station if you've ever been to a radio station they're boring you know <laughs> they just look like weird office spaces they're never dressed up like that right. you know there's always weird tchotchkes and knickknacks laying around but you know they don't have weird like mood lights you know it's not like looking up some YouTube gamers video feed now and they're there's like weird pink lights behind them they have, the, they have like the circle light yeah <laughs> yeah. they like came up with this notion that the Sawyers are like hoarders you know so they built all these weird scenes out of the bones and the lights in the tunnels and I love it you kind of see
2: that a little bit though in the first movie too that they're hoarding mostly human skeletons and animal skeletons it's
0: but. more that they live in filth
2: yeah. in the first yeah. movie
0: and the second movie is way more like we're turning our weird underground hellscape bat cave into like a Abenakis, <laughs> I think
2: the reason why I also responded so well to this movie is it turned them into super villains.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We joked about Batman earlier in Joker. Yeah, they become full comic book villains in this whole thing. Yeah,
2: the lair feels like a super villain lair. The most normal, quote unquote, at least from like a visual standpoint, is the cook, and he might be the most insane out of all of them
0: <laughs> in many aspects. The theatrical poster that is a play on the Breakfast Club <laughs> poster. Yes, that is. One thousand percent comic book bullshit energy. That's all that is. It's it's just these are all the villains posing on a Batman cover. There you go. You know, I love that they even
2: have the corpse like like nubbins, out in front of nubbins, all nubbins, of them. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <nubbins>. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, I wanted to ask you, and this kind of goes back to something like we had asked you early on, but you know, we'd asked you like what the series meant to you and where you came across this movie. But what was your first Toby Hooper movie? Do you remember the first Toby Hooper movie you watched that kind of led you onto this journey into the rest of his his filmography and him becoming your favorite director
3: i liked all of his movies that i saw obviously i grew up with poltergeist like any kid of the 80s yeah i'd seen texas chainsaw 2 i had seen life force but again i think his movies were just a little too sophisticated for me to fully appreciate as a kid it was when i was at an overnight i went to a 24-hour horror movie marathon And at like two in the morning, they showed the fun house and I had seen the fun house just on like a universal DVD, but I'd never seen it theatrically on a beautiful, pristine 35 millimeter print and it blew me away. I was like, "Oh, this movie is gorgeous and smart and scary and has so much going for it." And that was really the moment that I was like, "Oh, Toby Hooper's my guy." And then I went yeah. back and started going through all of his films either the, again or for the first time and just starting to unpack everything that I love about them. But it was it was really that screening of The Funhouse where everything kind of clicked into place for me.
2: Yeah, cuz I I noticed that your top 3 were like first Texas Chainsaw then the Funhouse and then TCM two. Yeah. And I I, I thought that was very interesting. So I wanted to like clarify to see what those three movies meant to you, not just these two, but also the fun house and it makes me all the more excited for us to eventually
0: cover it on our show yeah i I love the fun house that's one that i'm very excited about getting to eventually as well too because derek you and me at least growing up in the south that weird pop-up carnival kind of thing happens twice a year (laughs) definitely go into those kinds of things growing up and just being in that weird slightly dangerous grody kind of vibe yeah that movie rings very true just the weirdness of the whole thing and how it unfolds and the fact that what's his face plays four different characters and it's like never really explained and just so much of again the atmosphere and just the dread of you're not leaving this place you know a lot of that directly kind of translates to Texas Chainsaw 2 in terms of building that weird atmosphere and that carnival like loud nonsense over the top kind of thing
2: and and that idea that you're not leaving this place very much even rings true in this movie as goofy as it is that scene where it does mirror Sally and the grandpa but it's stretching the grandpa yeah. it's more comedic in this movie grandpa's m- much more of a comic book dressed up, but it's still very intense in a way of you are not leaving here alive. Yeah, despite even like letterface having a crush on you and all that. (laughs) But at least the last thing I wanted to cover. This is the final piece of this movie. Chop Top. Bill Mosley is someone I am excited to explore more of in our show because this reveal, the Chop Top reveal, his performance I am shocked it's not even more memorable. It's not even more talked about. As far as horror villains and horror icons go, that whole monologue-esque scene when he is in the radio station, when she walks in on him, you have the neon lighting like you mentioned earlier, Mansfield. He has the wig on and he's constantly scratching the plate <laughs> and then like, the eating scabs know, <laughs> yeah, the coat hanger and talking about riding the infinite turtle of the radio waves into infinity and all that. I rewatched that scene. His whole like back and forth with stretch up until Leatherface comes out and attacks her. I rewatched that scene maybe eight, nine times just because I love the quotes. I love the delivery of the line. I can't take my eyes off Chop Top in that scene. This feels like a horror icon making performance for Bill Mosley. Oh, yeah. I don't know like where he was in his career.
3: Yeah, this is I think the second thing he had ever done. And he's a guy who's I want to say he went to Yale. He grew up near me Mm -hmm. uh, in like suburban Illinois. He grew up in a town called Barrington, went to Yale, was living in New York, had made a short film called The Texas Chainsaw Manicure that Toby Hooper had seen and got a kick out of. And that's kind of how he got the audition or got the meeting. That's wild. Yeah. And gets cast in this role. And now I think he's able to kind of cash in on some of the chop top notoriety, but I think it took Rob Zombie sort of not rediscovering because he has continued to work but putting him in something big giving him a role to really dig into with Otis Firefly for him to start doing like the convention circuit and now when he goes to conventions people want to talk to Chop Top and he'll do like Chop Top photo ops and stuff like that but I don't think it would have been as well remembered if not for like the Rob Zombie resurgence and that's a shame because he is every bit as memorable a character as Leatherface I totally agree Yeah,
0: yeah, and it's kind of a shame that this movie effectively put the franchise on ice by like ending it right because right. we don't have any more chop top past this point right but you could do you know a whole spin-off series of just chop top running around well and I think part of like what
2: doesn't work with these remakes and the newer ones is it loses a lot of the charm of two in favor of just trying to be super gritty like the first one if you're gonna do a remake can we get a modern chop top and see what that's like I'm sure it'd be terrible because these remakes <laughs> aren't great yeah I would still love for them to give the character like respect he is just 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 as memorable to me in the Sora clan as Leatherface, as the cook, as Grandpa. And I got chills, the scene, like, even though it is kind of crazy and funny and even kind of freaky, uh, how quick he switches to violence with the hammer on her partner. But it's a great showcase for his talents. Just that one little moment. Yeah, it's great. It's not very often I get chills from, like, movies or a scene. I think the last time I could even think off the top of my head is, is Fury Road. It's like, it's hilarious that like something so big as Fury Road with them chasing each other around the giant tornado, like giving me chills. And then something so little as the reveal of Chop Top in a radio station and just like how powerful that is to me. The lasting effect. I don't know. I just, uh, maybe I'm making too much out of a simple scene, but like it was very effective for me.
3: Yeah. uh, It's it's good shit. And Bill Mosley actually pitched a third Texas Chainsaw Massacre to Toby Hooper. He wanted to take the series to New York and Toby Hooper was like, I'm not going to fucking New York. Yeah. <laughs> and shot it down and that was the end of that yep. that's kind of just funny
2: I would have I loved to see that like you yeah. know I mean we, we had Jason go to New York right. and that wasn't great but like maybe <laughs> Chop Top go to New York and, and like that is the, the thing like for, as we are saying like burn it all down and like it ends with everybody dead except for Stretch Everyone's killed kind of off screen, right? It is weird to me that, like, he didn't show anyone's death on screen, per se. Like, yeah, you see him take the chainsaw to the guts and then him fall down the hole. Like, most people probably
0: aren't going to survive that, but this yeah. is a horror movie. He survived getting half of his head blown off during Vietnam, so, <laughs> you know.
1: Hey, let-
0: It is disappointing not to see him again. Yeah. So on that note, last weird little tangent and fits right in with where we just were. So William Tony Hooper was trying to make some weird sequel prequel to these first two Texas Chainsaw movies called All-American Massacre. That was going to be this weird shot on video thing getting like weird that we just kind of did an episode on shot on video stuff. It started off as a 15-minute short film that he made in 98. It later ballooned into this 60-minute long thing in 2000. And it was supposed to be Chop Top, who is in a psychiatric prison years later, being interviewed, and then flashbacks to before the original movie. And then it all ends with him escaping and committing another mass murder. Bill Moseley came back as Chop Top. Todd Bates played like a younger version of Chop Top. Buckethead is one of the producers and did the score and plays Leatherface. And you can find 15 seconds or so of Buckethead as Leatherface that has surfaced because this movie never came out, obviously. Like, apparently the whole thing was shot in, like, the producer's garage and backyard. All this weird back and forth nonsense about we put money in and the guy who was the producer lied about also being this publicist with a fake name obviously the rights to the Texas Chainsaw are a fucking mess, so <laughs> that's why this movie never came out, but overall, like, you know, this was not an authorized thing, right? Despite it being Toby Hooper's son, it like, went up on a Kickstarter in 2011 to finish it, it never reached that goal, and the executive producer guy, like, auctioned off all this film and negatives and stuff from, like, a locker that he had, and so it's not known whether or not this movie was included in all that stuff, or who won that auction, but, like, Even as late as 2016, there was like a weird Patreon up for Abominable Entertainment, which has disappeared. And literally just two years ago, 2020, a short clip appeared. So like there's this weird lost sequel, unauthorized thing that's like out there that Toby Hooper's son was trying to make. And Bill Mosley was involved. That's something that for all these years, I have never heard of any of this nonsense. There's a trailer. You can watch the trailer. It looks awful. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, the clip of Buckethead as Leatherface is just him like doing this. Oh, I'm sad. I'm upset. And then just weird video overlays of all the other victims like being murdered. It's nonsense. And uh, that was like something that Toby Hooper's son has spent apparently the last 20 years trying to make. So, yeah, wild stuff. Last little bits and pieces I had. So Stretch was originally supposed to be Lefty's illegitimate daughter.
2: I'm glad they cut that. Yeah, yeah. It makes
0: way more sense to have Lefty as Sally and Franklin's uncle, right? That gives him a reason to be involved in the whole thing a lot more. The opening theme over the credits is a very interesting uh riff on Bernard Herman's psycho theme. <laughs> same kind of fun way that the band score for reanimator is like we mentioned earlier, the soundtrack to this movie kicks ass cramps concrete blonde lords of the new church oingo boingo lots of good stuff on the soundtrack the movie itself chopped off himself
2: influenced the infamous line from jerry was a race car driver yeah dog will hunt
1: dog will hunt
0: I love the radio station. That's a place I would love to just hang out and shoot the shit with people. Just the notes, the drawings, the posters, like all the weird little stuff. Like I love that set. in, in many ways, this
2: movie really only, I mean, it takes place multiple locations, but really the only two main locations are at the radio station yeah. and the Sawyer, like battle land, like underground hellscape. Yep. They get to the, the Sawyers a lot quicker than I thought they would and spend more time in it. Not that that's a bad thing. I really enjoyed that, but uh, I think it was maybe a risky move that really picked. Pays off mm-hmm. yeah. uh, of like spending that much time in the Sawyers and still making it interesting was really cool. I always
0: negate how l- much time you spend at the Sawyers lair. In my head, it's always like, well, that's the end of the movie. But then you really look at the timestamp. It's like half like, the movie. Down there, it's like, oh no, we're at we're halfway. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's just yeah. one of those weird, like, nah, it's it's a lot more of the movie than you think. We haven't talked about LG at all, but LG is a fun presence. He's very much a like, Texas 1000% kind of dude, no bullshitting. This is not somebody who is pretending to be a Texan. This is a dude who is Texan for sure. And
2: RIP Lou Perry, he had a really like tragic death. Yeah. He was murdered and like a
0: random act of violence, I think, Mm. from what I remember reading. So I love all of his spitting, which (laughs) every time that my wife sees this, she's like, oh God, I just got to see that guy spit all the time, don't I? I He's 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 always spitting. Right before he he dies with no face, he's talking to Lou. Look, darling, built your little fry house. (laughs) (laughs) That line always kills me. Built your little fry house. LG. Just who thought of that? Like, what was the weird nonsense thing that popped in somebody's head where they're like, let's just build a fry house. <laughs> Again, we talked about the scene with the chainsaw guy at the beginning, like fucking pulling Excalibur out of the stone. The store owner just getting amped is so hilarious to me. <laughs> Cut right. That tickled that yeah. me a little bit. It's just a chainsaw. Shop. Yeah, that's it. What do we have? Chainsaws and chainsaw accessories. <laughs> I love the weird Rambo 3 joke, considering that that movie wouldn't come out for another right. couple of years, but right. is also a canon movie.
2: Oh, shit. I didn't realize Rambo. Th- I just assumed
0: Rambo 3 had already been out. No. Nope. Like when he made that joke. Nope. And uh, cool. weirdly enough, again, made by the same exact studio. So it was just like a weird kind of knowing in joke. That's great. And the, the other little detail I love is Leatherface just pulling out that little electric carver. That's just the best, like, little baby chainsaw. Just using that to cut people up. That's just such a weird detail. It's in any other kind of movie, you know, somebody using like a giant axe or sword or something like that and then pulling out something like very tiny.
2: Honestly, the through line between that is everything that happens LG is Pretty fucking horrific because yeah. he gets bludgeoned in near death. His body's like twitching. Oddly familiar to the first movie of like what happens to some of them. And then he gets his fucking face cut off with that little like kitchen saw. But yeah, I guys, I don't know what else
0: to say. Like I I just had a blast. Yeah. Like, this movie kicks all kinds of ass. I'm glad you liked <laughs> it. I, I didn't know how you were going to take this movie, but I figured this is probably going to be right up your alley. I still have to think about
2: it. I still have to let this kind of sit with me for a longer, but
0: I have a feeling this is going to go high
2: on like my list of favorite movies. Nice this was a blast awesome fucking blast
0: hell yeah well uh i guess let's go ahead and
3: just wrap it up there that's a good point yeah
2: any final thoughts
0: patrick uh oh, no, you
3: said everything beautifully this movie rules hell yeah yes
0: love it love it love it cool well yeah that's it done episode 100 so, yeah, we've done it. Here's to another they hundred. Think we would last this long. Yeah. Here's to another hundred more blood rage watches in the yeah, future. Absolutely. And uh, what a great way to kick it off than to cap off this hundred with Patrick. So, yeah, thank you so fucking much for coming. Yeah, on. this was a blast, and very thankful. Can't
2: stress enough to our listeners, to you, Patrick. You are probably the main reason why our podcast exists. Again, go check out F this movie. Yeah, oh, thank you guys. Is there Anything you want to plug, socials, work, whatever you want to plug, go for it
3: go to Fthismovie.com or, you know, we have a podcast that comes out on Wednesdays. I'm on Twitter at Patrick Bromley and we have a new Patreon that we just started. So you can go to yes. patreon.com yep. slash F this movie and you can get some extra stuff. I think it what it's only
2: for five bucks and you get extra episodes and everything. Yeah. Like I hopped on immediately and then I immediately texted Mansfield and I was like, they have a Patreon. Oh, you guys yep. are so nice. <laughs> Thank you. It's
0: the least we can do. Yeah. Listen to the first episode today and was dying. Cause it's kind kind of the best unfiltered you and Adam just going back and forth and kind of losing y'all's minds a little bit talking about sequels. Yeah. So yeah. fun times. I would be reminisced to say that my sister-in-law Lauren, who I
2: shout out earlier and has been on our show multiple times. She is a big fan of you guys as well. Oh, that's so nice. She absolutely adores, I think it was what your Batman and Robin with Adam, <laughs> where he was saying that he knows that there are better Batman movies, but that's his favorite. She loves the show.
0: So
3: yeah, that's so nice. You guys, thank you so much. It means a lot. We definitely appreciate you
0: coming on so much. And this was a blast. So cool. Yeah. Everybody check out if this movie, check out Patrick's work at all the other places we mentioned earlier. And
2: well, it'll be in the show notes as well. Yeah.
0: Craven Craven still going. So if you want a good dose of some extra horror, there's always that show with Heather Wixon showing up on corpse club here and there as well, too. So Patrick is all over the place. If you want to check out more of his stuff, definitely give it a listen. So I guess that's basically it. You want to take us out, Derek? Yeah, uh, for the
2: hundredth time, we are Watch If Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, the coward, and my movie Monster Boy co-host, Aaron Mansfield, in which we dissect the fierce phobias and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and discuss just how scary they are for newbies like me, fellow cowards, and gorehounds like Aaron and Patrick. Um, you can catch us at pretty much every pod catcher at this time. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. Please continue to rate review us, especially on Apple Good Pods and Pod Chaser. We that's where most of our reviews have been coming from. We really appreciate it. Thank you for sticking with us for a hundred episodes. I hope you stick with yep, us yep. for a hundred more. Thank you, thank you. We uh, are on socials at Watch Your Fear on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, on top of our Twitter page and our Facebook page is a music Spotify playlist of spooky tunes. Music from movies and just other music that's influenced by horror. Speaking of music, shout out to your little brother Jesse Mansfield for the bumps at the beginning and the end of each episode. He has been with us since the very beginning too. Um, you can catch him at Opossums and Party Gator at Bandcamp and a million other music projects. Go check out his music; it's all pretty good. Throw him some money, get some tunes, and I think that's it. Aaron, I miss anything?
0: No, I think that's about it. But you got to know, you got one choice, boy. Sally. Or the Saw. Sally is, well, nobody knows. But the Saw? The Saw is family.